This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 592 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Stephen Nisbet. Now, Stephen was a member of the Air Force's Tier 1 PJ's 24th STS, so we discuss a host of topics from his own journey into the military, his paramedic clinicals, trauma medicine, the importance of fitness, the tragic training accident that took one of his brother's lives, organizational stress, the transition out of the military, and so much more. Before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 600 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Stephen Nisbet. Enjoy. Stephen, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure and been following your podcast for a little while. So um, it's an honor to actually be on it. So 
Well, I mean, it's going to be a great conversation. As we said before we started recording, of all the military kind of branches and, you know, spec ops groups, I think the PJs closest, you know, they, they mirror closest the, the kind of firefighter paramedic, especially in North America here. So I think there's going to be a lot of, uh, of great conversations ahead of us. So where on planet Earth are we finding you today? So today I am in Whispering Pines in North Carolina. So that's uh, going to be about 45 minutes west of Fort Bragg. Um, most people know Pinehurst or Southern Pines uh, for the golfing. The golfing industry is pretty heavy here. So I would love to start at the very beginning chronologically. So tell me where you were born and then tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Sure. Um, I was born in Aurora, Colorado uh, in 1986. Spent a few years there. My dad, he uh, was in the Air Force for a while as a security forces member. He, I think he did about eight years. Um, and then he chose to leave and then starts, took up a job as a police officer um, there in the area. Um, moved to Tucson, Arizona. Um, and um, that's where, so I'm a twin. Um, and I have two, uh, an older brother. So I have a twin, uh, a twin that's, what are we, 35 now? And then I have an older brother that's 37. Um, so then we spent most of our childhood in Tucson, Arizona. Um, my dad worked the gang unit for you know, about 20-something years. He retired after 30. Um, so he was very, um, very inundated, like always uh, at work. Always There was always some sort of gang violence happening, you know, Christmas, he's getting a phone call going out. What um, you name it, he's getting some sort of phone call going out. He's showing up at the house in a different car every day. I had no clue what was going on. Even people breaking into his car and woke up one night and uh, opened up the, the window to see my dad holding a dude at gunpoint um, on the ground. You know, I was eight years old or nine years old at the time. <clears throat> no clue what was happening. Um, didn't realize any of the danger that was that was taking place in my front front yard. But pretty cool to see. Um, so we spent, uh, what the first, I think 15 years or about 15 years there, um, until I was graduated high school and then joined, joined the air force. Um, and then my mom, she did mostly, um, stay at home mom, um, duty, taking care of us three, three heathens. And then, you know, doing soccer games, soccer practices and baseball with me. And then, uh, she was also working small part-time jobs here and there. So, the nonprofit that you started, obviously, which is at the end of this conversation, but it's focused on veterans and first responders transitioning out of their profession. When you talk to your father, what was his transition out and what is kind of his impression of what you're doing now? Um, his transition, he retired after 30 years and he was he was ready to retire, but I think he had um, that was his identity for so long and he just didn't know what to do with himself afterwards. And, and he liked gardening and, and lawn care and lawn maintenance and, and, you know, raising, he even wanted livestock at some point. I think it was just, you know, living the a simple life, you know, just after doing all this wild stuff in his, um, through his career, he just wanted to be a simple, live a simple life after that. Um, but I think once he separated himself from that, um, and now had nothing else going on, I think a lot of the symptoms that he didn't realize he had, and likewise, I didn't know I had, um, started catching up with them where he couldn't understand, like he was having these panic attacks and anxiety attacks and, 
Um, he's obviously got some severe sleep apnea and has had it. Is it probably all of his adult life um, just from his job? And he just didn't know he had it because he never got tested, um, never went and get a sleep study. Um, and so seeing all these things take place and, and him and I were experiencing a lot of the same symptoms at the very same time, um, or at least near the same time. Um, so it really um, pulled us together in a way um, because he could see what I'm trying to do for law enforcement and first responders uh, for people just like him. So it's a way for him and I to connect. Well, it's interesting because when people are treating our professions, you know, a sleep study is done when the reality is, you know, when we're not sleeping for hours and hours and hours at a time, there also just needs to be a presumption. You know, I mean, all of us are going to have issues and Sadly, I think sleep apnea is completely directly related to sleep deprivation. And then what happens is, you know, the musculature gets weaker and there's a weight gain. And the next thing, you know, like many of the fire stations I worked in, it's like the set of Star Wars, the CPAPs everywhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's, that's exactly it. Everybody, I think when I, uh, it became really apparent on my last deployment, um, and we were in transit moving from one one country to another there's a group of you know 50 or 60 of us and i'm having to share a a bunk bed it's an open bay and i'm just exhausted from this time from this flight get hop in the bed i'm going to take a quick nap and i was the only one that got that sleep that night everybody else apparently i kept up because of my snoring um (laughs) and, and dying every every hour for 20 times an hour yeah, it's crazy. I mean, there's there's so many areas now that we're seeing are completely related, whether it's that, whether it's, you know, the low testosterone in our community, which should have high testosterone. You think about what we do, um, you know, and, and I hope that we can look at, especially in the first responder professions, that, you know, the work weeks, you know, if we're going to ask people to be awake for 12 or 24 hours straight, we got to give them the rest and recovery they need because we're literally killing our people at the moment. Absolutely. Yeah. On the testosterone, I... I- Started off, I'm sure I was in a, in a thousand eight hundred meter or eight hundred you know number range, um, and then when I was getting out, getting it tested, I'm at two hundred. Um, and so, in our careers and you know in, the, in our jobs, I'm, I should be in the eight hundred range. It should be where a professional athlete should be performing. That's what's expected of us to be a, a, this, the same athleticism as a pro athlete. Um, yet my testosterone is you know in the in the dumps. It's as low as it could possibly be. And so we asked for some TRT or some testosterone replacement therapy. The only way we get that is number one, we stop deploying or we become the NIF or we can't do our job anymore. Or number two, also we have to be clinically low and clinically low is below 150. Um, and that's for like an 80 year old male man. So you're telling me that a 30 year old dude has to be the same as an 80 year old man um, as far as to be considered clinically low. Um, so it was really discouraging in the military to, to see those numbers and be like, all right, like that's, that does that doesn't add up. That doesn't make sense. No. Well, a sense is the, the, the magic word. I had a uh, Kirk Parsley on who was a Navy SEAL, um, and went to med school and came back as a physician. Very, very long story short, found that his SEALs were, the, the blood work was coming back like an eight year old woman. He's like, what the hell is going on? So he ends up realizing it's sleep deprivation dives into the sleep medicine world and 
that scale that you're talking about, I mean, that is an eight-year-old man. When you look at it, it was a study of a certain town near one of the Ivy League schools. And the, you know, the high end was the 18-year-old linebacker quarterback and the low end was the AT, 80-year-old sedentary male or female. And so, yeah, when we go in and your average GP goes, no, you're fine. You're within range. No, you know, you're a 28-year-old firefighter or PJ. You should not be anywhere close to 200. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Does not make sense. So walking through your kind of uh, um, career path then, when you were still in the school age, were you dreaming of the military or was there something else you were thinking about? No, not a chance. I, I was a, sp- a space nerd. Um, I had no ambitions really for the, uh, for the military. Um, my ambitions, I, I feel like I was a pretty decent soccer player growing up, but um, you know, we weren't super wealthy. We'd, like, I didn't get scholarships to go to these nice colleges and things like that and universities. Uh, my, I, my parents couldn't afford for me to go there. Um, so I went to a community college and, you know, they didn't really have a soccer team there that, especially that was getting s- scouted, you know, like nobody's going and looking at this community college soccer team. Like this is the, this is the next up and coming star. Um, so it was pretty depressing, um, having to give up that dream and, and, and now reality hits of what do I do when I grow up? Um, and so, I, throughout my childhood, really enjoyed space, um, and I liked, you know, learning about different, you know, planets and stars and things like that, and so I was like, I want to get into astronomy, um, and, and I still love space. It's, I find it fascinating, just the, the different unknowns that are out there. Yeah, there's a lot of unknowns on the, on the planet. Most of them are on the ocean, um, and, but out in space, like, that's really the unknown. Like, nobody's, nobody's out there you know, figuring it out and touching it and feeling it and, and, and whatnot. So that fascinated me and the, just the vastness of it. Uh, we'll never see all of it. So that's what I went to college for. I went into the astronomy um, program, showed up for my classes, and, and, and then I realized this is just like high school. And then in my astronomy 101 class, though I liked the information, I looked around at who was around me, and I was an 18-year-old at the time, and I looked around and I see a lot of elderly folks around me and just, they weren't, they weren't my, uh, my demographic. They weren't me. You know, I was like, there's certainly something else I can be doing. Like this does not feel like it's hitting the spot. Um, so then that's when I said, all right, well, I think I'm just going to go into the military. It's a shame the space force wasn't hiring back then. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was going to shoot him. <laughs> <laughs> so again, Jumping way, way forward, we have uh, seals like Johnny Kim and some other people that, you know, just these insane overachievers that are, you know, seals and then um, physicians and then they go in the space program. Did you ever think about trying to get in the space program towards the end of your career? Um, no, there was no, uh, there was actually an individual that went through my green team. He um, went into the space program um, and I was, I was jealous of him. I was like, man. I wish I, I, I wish I had like the energy to go through another selection like that and have to learn all these different things. But at, at that point in my life and my career, I was, I was all done with selections. I was like, I, I don't want to do another selection. I don't want to do another prove yourself, prove, prove if you have what it takes kind of thing. Um, so no, like, yeah, the, like the, the dreamer in me was, is jealous and wishes he could have done that. But the reality of the situation. I was became more of a realist. Now there's, there's got to be something else. 
Well, I know you've got quite an unusual, not unusual, but a, a, a pretty, um, what's the right word? There's some lessons that could be pulled from your recruitment story and, and you know, using naysayers as fuel. So talk to me about that. Oh, sure. That, I mean, that's, a, that's the way of life as well because um, it, it still doesn't end. It's, it goes on to this day. Um, so when I did decide I wanted to join the military, I went to an Air Force recruiter because it's what my – my dad and my mom recommended go to the Air Force. That's where you're, that's where you're going to want to go. Um, and naturally, everyone has their funny jokes, the Chair Force, and you know that it's they're they're weak and this and that. And like, I didn't really care. Went and all my friends were doing engineer jobs for Raytheon, IBM, and things like that. So that those are my friends who I surrounded myself with. So I was like, I want to be like them. I want to be you know making the money that they make and do those things so we can have things in common. However, I had no desire of engineering stuff. And so I was just trying to force something that really wasn't there. So I went to the Air Force, uh, took the ASVAB, scored really high on it. And they're like, hey, you can do pretty much whatever you want. And uh, here's a job that that's, takes a really high ASVAB score. It's a nuclear weapons apprentice. And I was like, oh, okay, that sounds pretty cool. It sounds rad. Um, what do you do? And, and, and I was like, here's a pathway for me. And I'll do this for four years, get out. I'll use the GI Bill to go to um, school to finally go to the university that I wish I could have gone to. And then I'll transfer some of this into working for Raytheon. Um, And then I stepped out of the recruiter's office with, that's what I'm going to do. As I leave, um, there's an army recruiter standing outside and he's like, hey, hey, bud. (laughs) And I looked at him and he goes, hey, you want to be in special forces? And I was like, man, that was motivating. Yeah, I do. Yeah, sure, sure. And he step into my office. And so I go and step into his office, listen to what he has to say. I was like, oh, man, this guy is really pumping me up. He's getting me going. So uh, he's willing to give me $25,000 to go and be a Green Beret. Um, and he says I can do it. Uh, I, but I don't want to join the Army. So hold on a second. I'll be right back here if, if I don't get access to this, if I don't figure out what's happening over at the Air Force. So I go out, go to the Air Force, and I say, hey, um, I know I chose – a nuclear weapons apprentice, but do you guys have any special operations career fields here in the Air Force? And his response is like, yeah, man, we do, but uh, you're not going to make it, man. Like, you, you'd quit. It's just not for you. Just stick with what you got. And I was like, oh, okay. All right, pal. Um, why don't you go ahead and send me what you got for, uh, for this special operations career field? So two, one being combat control, the other one being pararescue. And I was like, combat control, that sounds like my, my thing. I want to control combat. Uh, so that's what, I, that's what I chose and stepped out of that, stepped out of the office. Well, again, so with the selection process for that, um, you had one career path in mind and you found yourself on the other. Right. So I chose combat control because that looked like my thing. And uh, I didn't want to do anything with medicine. I, didn't, I wasn't really into I sound like a lot of pressure to, to try to save somebody. Um, and so started training cause I started looking up, all right, how do, what's the selection process? Okay. It's, it's an indoctrination course. You go through basic training and then you do in doc. So I started watching these videos and these, and the movies at the time, they have just produced a documentary called rescue warriors. So met up with a couple other guys that were in the area that were training to, to become spe- special operators in the air force. We all linked up and had this like movie night to watch rescue warriors. And I was like, man, this is sweet like okay so now we know what to do started training together 
um, a lot of pool work, a lot of running, a lot of calisthenics. And at some point, you have to take the pass test, so the physical ability and stamina test. Um, and so when I showed up for that, the recruiter was grading the test, and he said, all right, which one are you taking? And I said, excuse me? And he said, well, which one are you taking? Um, there's one I, – I didn't know there was two. There was two different types. He's like, well, one has the swim in the beginning, one has it at the end. And I was like, um, well, I've been training with swimming at the beginning, so I, well, let's do that. So did the whole test, passed it really, really well. Um, and he said, all right, you're going to be a PJ. And I was like, I thought I chose combat control. Ah, they're the same thing. Um, once you get to the, <laughs> once you get to basic training, you guys will figure it out. Um, you know, you can, they can flop back and forth. You go to the same training place and you just tell them there. And I was like, okay, that makes sense. Young 18 year old kid doesn't know what he's, what he's doing, what he's signing up for. Um, I said, that makes sense. And then signed the paperwork and then figured this guy had my back. And I was super wrong about that. <laughs> As it seems common sense to me, it's it's hard to drown if you do the swim first. But if you're already tired from all the other stuff, that seems like that'd be a really bad choice to do the swim at the end. <laughs> yeah, or yeah, exactly. Or you're cramping up. Exactly. Cramping really bad. <laughs> <laughs> so with PJ, as I said, I, I see so many parallels with especially firefighter EMT or more, more specifically firefighter paramedic, which a lot of us are in the US. Um and I heard you talk about this on, on one of your, your podcasts with a marine pilot that you did that was excellent. Um, the the jack-of-all-trades, master of none, I think, is what we have to acknowledge in the fire service. Like, If it's not involving law enforcement, they call us for everything else. So talk to me about how they set the bar as you started going through selection and then training. And then what was their philosophy on being able to raise your experience and and um, knowledge simultaneously when you have so many skill sets you have to master. Yeah, great. Um, let's get go a little bit. So the selection portion, you you finish basic training, and uh, and then you go to indoctrination course. At least back then, you did a twelve week indoctrination course, and this is in two thousand five, two thousand six. Um, and so I was going through basic training, and there was thirty other guys going through basic training with me that were going to become PJs in my course. Um, and so they were all staying up at night in, in the barracks doing extra push-ups and pull-ups. And I was in, I was asleep. I was getting my sleep on <laughs> and I was not getting extra workouts in. Um, I was too tired for that. And I was like, I'm, we work out during the day. I'll get more workouts when I get to the, to Indoc. And apparently the basic training instructor took note and he saw that they were doing this extra work and he pulls me up and lights me up and tells me that I'm going to quit, that everybody else is doing all this extra work and I don't have what it takes to become a PJ. Um, and, and that I'm going to be the one out there quitting. I was like, dang, like he's really lighting me up. I was like, I guess so. Like, I don't know. I just want to sleep. Um, I don't need to do extra pull-ups. I don't feel like I, that's necessary for me right now. Um, finished that basic training, went into Indoc, um, and then we started with 120 people. And so, you know, basic days, you're waking up at three in the morning, eating breakfast or trying to shove down some sort of food, um, even though anxiety is through the roof. Show up in the morning, you start your calisthenics, do a really long run, um, then do some more uh, calisthenics and think, they're just smoking you. It's just a 10-week smoke session. Once you finish that, 
before lunch, you'll go to your first pool session, um, which is um, just like finning and swimming, figuring out how to, how to work your body in the pool, go to lunch, come back for the worst time of your, of your life. So this is your water confidence training. Um, and so you're doing underwaters, you're doing buddy breathing, you're doing ditch and dons, you're doing weight belt swims, all this stuff to keep your face in water. Um, so at the point where you're about to pass out. So, um, and it, and it was, you know, started off easy and then it ramped up to, to being some of the most heinous sessions I've ever had in my life, um, where I thought I was going to die by the, at some point in those 12 weeks, they're going to have a hell night or, or an extended training day. So it's about 36 to 48 hours of additional training of just continuous smoking you trying to get you to quit, uh, kind of work. Um, and so that happened, I think the third or fourth week for me. Um, and you usually get paired up with a buddy. So I, here I am, I was 130 pounds soaking wet, um, you know, five ten, not skinny fat, not like jacked, like these other guys around me. And then I get paired up with the, with the leader of the, the class leader. Um, he's a major, uh, 42 years old, 200 and something pounds. Um, and I have to be puttied with him everywhere. And so I looked at him and I was like, Hey man, um, just so you know, if there's any buddy carrying event or anything like that, we're not winning. Like we're not going to win that. <laughs> and he's like, Oh, it's, it's all right, kid. You're going to be all right. And so I was right. Um, we were the last on everybody carrying event cause he's, I'm carrying double my weight on, on me to, to move him. Um, and so we finished that extra training day. Um, a bunch of people quit. Then I think two weeks later, three weeks later, um, that class leader, the guy I was paired with, he, he passed away during the course. Um, so he, during one of our underwater sessions, one of our Thursday, black Thursday sessions, instructors came in, just, you know, van open music blaring on the speaker phone, um, to raise up your heart rate, get you going. So did a bunch of exercises, duck walked to the deep side of the pool, jumped in underwater front flip, 50 meter underwater there and back. Um, I, my heart rate was jacked and I was like, well, it's not going to matter if I wait here another second, I'm passing out regardless underwater. Somehow I did not. Um, and so got there and back. Um, once I got back, I could see the, the pool instructor kind of pointing in the pool and somebody passed out, which is not unusual. Um, it was a pretty common thing. Um, but they pulled him out. Probably one of the most incredible feats of strength I've ever seen is one of the instructors dives down, picks him up at the bottom of the pool and shoots from the you know nine feet under the water and throws him up on top of the, the gunnel, um, all in one motion, you know, like incredible feet of strength. Um, and this, you know, 240 pound individual. Um, and so he was a blue, they, they did start CPR and, you know, this is my first experience with death really. Um, and so watching this happen and, we got sat outside and they started working on him for a little bit. They got him back, got him into an ambulance, and then he ended up passing away at the hospital. Um, it really brought us uh, closer together as a team um, and really kind of made things more real. Like, man, I guess I could die. Uh, but it didn't really hit me. And, and me, for me at that point, I was like, okay, well, I was, this is what I was expecting. I was expecting to lose teammates. And so this is the first one of probably many. Um, and so finished that course. Um, and I was, you know, like, man, what a feat. And then you look at what everything else is ahead of you. I was like, this is just a small piece. Like I still don't have my beret yet. I got to go through EMT basic paramedic, um, free fall, airborne survival, um, 
underwater survival dive school, and then our whole pararescue course. So that's two years of training that I still have to go through. Um, and so we started with that 120 and finished with 12 out of those years. Um, and so graduated with 12 dudes to put on the, put on our beret, um, passed everything the first time, uh, first try. And then moving on to like, all right, now we have all these tools um, and all these skills, skill sets. How do we get better? Well, it really depends on where you went. So I was selected to go to Moody Air Force Base in Georgia, a rescue squadron. Um, and rescue squadrons typically deploy in groups um, of PJs, and they would respond similarly to a fire, like a fire engine uh, station. They get a call, they scramble up, get, get a, a plan together, show up, solve the problem, go home. Um, that's where I was supposed to go. Then a couple openings happened up at Special Tactics Squadron, and I happened to perform really well throughout the course, so they let the top individuals pick these Special Tactics Squadrons. So I got a slot in Okinawa at the ST unit there. And so a Special Tactics Squadron, we attached to other Special Operations units, um, Green Berets, SEALs, Ranger teams, um, the likes of Marine Special Operations teams. Um, and so we'll attach to them as PJs, as singletons, and now we're essentially on our own um, using hope, you know, everything we learned to apply it in the same setting, only it's more immediate. We're not waiting on a call. The thing is happening in front of us, and now we have to solve the problem. Um, so being able to um, develop these skills, um, number one, you have good leaders. Um, in that era of my time period growing up, what was actually a lot of um, – Desert Storm PJs and, and uh, Bosnia PJs that didn't really have the combat experience um, that we do now. Um, so it was a lot of like lessons learned of Vietnam era um, work. And so they had really good skill sets as far as infill, like they could fly in a helicopter really well. They could tell you where, where you're going on a helicopter. They knew where they were walking in the woods. They knew how to jump and fly their body in the sky they, some of them knew how to shoot pretty good. Um, so they worked these individual skills, but when it came to tactics and actual employment of tactics and actual combat, um, that wasn't really there when I was going through the pipeline. And it really started to develop heavy in the early 2000s, 2010s. Hopefully that answers some of your question. I know I rambled on. No, no, it's, it's great. But like I said, there's, there's such a, a strong parallel. Well, firstly, the, the, the teammate that you lost, did you ever find out the underlying condition that, that yeah, caused him? That. He, he had an, an underlying um, heart defect um, that he didn't know or he didn't know he had um, after they uh, did an autopsy on him. So when I look back, you could see his condition deteriorating. Like he was performing high at the uh, three weeks and then four and five, you could see like he was really hurting on some of these runs and like, he was falling behind. And, you know, I just thought it was natural because of his age and whatnot. And it was easy for us to recover and not so much for him as a 42 year old C-130 pilot. Um, but he ended up having a heart condition that he didn't know about and uh, passing out underwater. Um, that was, was kind of it um, that kind of put too much strain on the heart and caused a heart attack. Um, and ultimately didn't get back yeah i mean it's, it's heartbreaking but as a medic you know i had young healthy people drop dead on me you know and we did everything right and they still died and i think that was this last couple of years one of the most 
infuriating things where they'd always pull out that one person. Oh, this person had COVID and they were this. It's like, well, yeah, but as a medic, you know, we see those people and it's no less sad, but there mm-hmm. are things that can happen in the human body that shouldn't, but they just do. And there's no rhyme or reason to it. And it's tragic, but sometimes healthy people just die. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. So with the, um, the the maintenance of the skill set you have all those all those different schools that you go to those first couple of years once you get in how are they able to maintain and and improve upon all those skills kind of simultaneously so a lot of the skill sets like uh, let's say jumping and flying and things like that there are checks um, in place so you have to fly you know a certain amount of hours a month on a certain aircraft number one, to maintain your pay and number two, to maintain your currency. So your currency qualification. So jumping, you have to jump, you know, this specific parachute every 90 days and you have to jump this specific parachute once every, every 180 days. Um, so you can at least remain current on it. And, and same with your emergency procedures. Um, as far as those skills go, your dive currencies, that's to be, you know, two dives a year. Um, so a lot of those are just uh, basic um, to get proficient at it, it was really on you and the and the leader or whoever team leader was. So usually for me, I looked at what was our employ- what was our deployment looking like? Where were we headed on the deployment? Um, and what was that train up going to look like? So um, in order to maintain our medical skill sets, um, we use a lot of um, some live tissue training um, takes place. We we have some pretty um, big uh, or at least high high end mannequins that can mimic breathing and different functions of the body and whatnot. So those were cool, but a lot of it was really problem solving um, of like extrication and things like that. Um, so it was really how well, how motivated and how knowledgeable was your team leader at the time um, to be able to set up the training and then prosecute that training um, and focus on on those um, specifics. Let's say let's say a medic. Um, some guys were really good at medicine and they were really good at sick call and they, they spent a lot of time doing that. And then other guys got really good at rock climbing and that was something they wanted to do all the time. Rock climb, they wanted to do some, um, mobility, snow and ice travel and things like that. Um, and so they became the experts and me as a leader, I would identify those individuals and then I would give them a task. Hey, I want you to set up a climbing trip. I want you to hire these guides and then you kind of run that trip. And then make sure that we have everything we need, make sure they're teaching us what we need to know, um, and then make sure that we're at least um, ex not, I, I hate to say experts, um, but at least we know enough not to kill ourselves um, and, and, to, and to do good. Um, so that was what I did as a leader to make sure that each individual is doing um, uh, has a task or has a, has a specialty. Some of our guys really enjoyed jumping. So then I pushed them towards um, AFFI, so um, advanced free fall um, instructors, so they can jump and then they can coach other people in the sky. Um, and then that, that actually translates to a civilian qualification. Um, we all finished paramedics, so we're all EMTP um, certified. So we have to um, refresh our EMTP every two years. Um, so that that's a standard that we have to maintain and we'll send our our folks out or pjs out to different courses um there's one here in north carolina called wake med or wake forest or om 
that's out of Wake Forest. It's called OMD, Operational Medical Detachment. Um, and they set up scenarios, and it's run by a former PJ, um, set up all kinds of scenarios for special operations to, to maintain those medical, advanced medical skill sets. Um, but really, to answer your question, how, do you, how does an individual become good at their job? It's, it's, it's on that individual to, to take the time. You know, I wasn't good at climbing. And then I deployed with a guy that was really good at climbing. And I just spent a lot of time learning how to do it and learning different tools. And then he made me do these challenges um, to challenge my, my thinking. Um, and rope rescue, a lot of it's really thinking about the problem and making it more efficient. Everything's about efficiency. Um, so, yeah, I can, like, can we use ropes for everything? Sure. But if it's faster and easier to just pick them up and walk them out, well, let's just do that. Um, otherwise we can break out a rope if I'm by myself and now I can use a mechanical advantage, those kinds of things. And then likewise, I started to enjoy long range shooting and then I got into it and then started going to these different courses. And then I spent my time on some deployments with uh, some snipers. And then I said, Hey, teach me what you, teach me what you know. I have this sniper rifle. I I'm pretty dangerous with it, but I want to be surgical. Um, so he just taught me how to put, put the bullets exactly where I needed it to go. Uh, and so that helped me out on several deployments. Well, you talked about doing EMT basic and paramedic. I know that you did, you know, clinicals and, and ride-alongs with municipal departments and local hospitals. Were you surprised at what you saw once you rode with these responders and the kind of calls that we run on? Um, yeah, I would say so. I think um, there's the patient patient shock value. Uh, like understanding the patient and who I'm going to, um, you know, I, I got beat up a, a couple times by some, some drug users, um, and did not expect it coming. Cause you know, the one individual, I did my ride alongs in, in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And so get a call and these guys are obviously jaded and, and have been doing this for a very long time. And they're like, all right, new, new dude, you're up. And so I go up and try to evaluate this guy and, and they probably know that knew this guy for a long time, a long period of time and sweating profusely, clearly fidgety and on some sort of drug. And then out of nowhere, just front kicks me right in the chest. And I mean, felt like I got kicked by an elephant, um, flew across the room and I was like, Oh, oh my gosh. And the guy, the other guy, firefighters are laughing. Um, and so now we have to wrestle this guy down and, and get him, um, secure to the gurney and, and restrain and whatnot. So there's that kind of shock value. And then there's the shock value of um, some sort of um, trauma. So now I'm taking, I'm used to the repetition in training as far as doing um, chest tubes and things like that. And what I'm going to see, seeing pictures and getting proficient at the motions and whatnot, but now actually executing it on an individual. Um, we had a, a, I was working in the Santa Fe hospital um, and there was a, a gang member that came in. Um, he had gotten stabbed um, by a small knife right in the chest and it happened to get, just be in the right spot, hit his heart. Um, and so I was at the head. I just happened to be there, threw a tube in him, bagging, um, helped um, with a chest tube. So he got bilateral chest tubes. Um, I'm not a big fan of ER docs, or I'm not a big fan of docs in general. But um, this ER doc actually really impressed me. Um, came in very cool, calm, collective. He's like, all right, this, this is what's going to happen. Um, I need a bunch of blood over here. 
uh, or a bunch of more blood um, to be stacked up and get ready to infuse. We're going to stop the blood. I'm going to crack his chest. Give me a Foley catheter. He's just listing these things out. Super calm. Um, and I'm bagging this, this dude. He pulls out a, a, a grinder, essentially, a, a Dewalt grinder. and just cuts this dude's chest wide open. And here I am, like, now that he's filleted open and I see this, his, I'm, as I'm bagging, I'm seeing his lungs inflate. And I was like, whoa, this is, this is wild. Um, pretty surreal moment. And you can see his heart, his heart's beating. And every time it beats, a squirt of blood would shoot out of this little hole um, until it was no longer beating anymore. So like he scooped out all this blood um, and then it stopped bleeding. Um, he shut off the blood and started massaging the heart. And then um, I'm sorry, he threw the flow, fully catheter in there, closed that hole, shut off the blood, started massaging his heart. Um, and then starts having a casual conversation with me about what he's doing. Cause it was just like me and him in the room. And I'm bagging this guy and like my mind's just getting blown. And he's like, yeah, this is what's happening. Like, okay, so I just put this fully catheter in here. I plugged up the hole. Um, I'm going to massage his heart. We were over infusing him with blood. This, the heart was just getting too worked on with, with the amount of blood we're pushing into here. Let's slow it down. Let's let it develop a little bit of space in here and then we'll get it going. And he's like, oh, oh, there it is. And then you can see the heart beat. It started beating again. I was like, that's incredible. Um, and then the family showed up. And so they're like, okay, we're going to take him to the OR. Um, let's put a blanket over top of his chest and let the family say their goodbyes. I'm still bagging. They didn't put, a, put him on a vent or anything because we're, we're about to move him. And so here I am bagging. Uh, watching the family come up and pretty much give them kisses and hugs and saying their goodbyes, essentially. And I'm, I'm sitting here hoping that they don't lift open his, the blanket that's covering this giant hole in his chest because would, they would see his heart and his lungs inflating. Um, and so, you know, it's like, hey, all right, well, you know, I think we got to go. And I took him to the, to the OR and, the, and where they worked on him and they saved him. Um, but then I got an update like two, like a month later about his progress. And I guess he was walking down the um, hallway um, saw a rival gang member started you know, interacting with them and throwing up gang signs and whatnot, um, ended up throwing a clot and having a stroke. Um, and then that guy ended up being permanently blind after that, um, stroke. And so he, I guess he did not learn his lesson, um, that, um, he probably should not engage in gang activities, but, um, maybe he didn't learn it now. Yeah. It's one way to get a crit walk is a stroke. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That reminds me, actually, I had a very similar call. It's funny. Um, and it, I always talk about this when there's this kind of blind kind of ignorance to this gang loyalty that there isn't. That they, you know, I was in Anaheim and the, the homies basically pushed him out the door right in front of the ER and this wasn't a trauma center. So we get called to actually do it into facility and we got him all hooked up to the monitor. I'm holding the monitor and watching his heart rate just go down the drain. I'm like, I don't know if we can move him. He's starting to go. So the ER doc, who again, was a nice guy, was calm, but definitely not well-versed in cardiac massage because he had to get a book and open it up. That's not a yeah. good sign. <laughs> but, well, you know, kudos to him. He did it and, he, and he's, he was successful. So he's doing cardiac massage. The trauma surgeon that was waiting to receive him drove down to this hospital, cracked the chest. But I mean, they emptied everything onto the table, intestines, Anything that would move out the way, they moved out the way. And, uh, you know, in the end, he, I mean, he'd been shot multiple times. So there was, there was no saving him in the end, but it's yeah. the same thing. You know, that whole blood in, blood out, you know, loyalty is bullshit when it came to 
the fact they literally flung him out of car and drove away so you know mm-hmm. all all these this kind of you know affiliations and loyalty are, are for what you know you sadly now you're you're dead so yeah it's, it's an interesting parallel between that call and mine yeah exactly and so that that was a, a shock value to me and i think um starting to to now apply some of these skills and see it in, in work and seeing like wow like these things do actually do work and watching the vital signs change as as these things happen and you know, as I administer drugs, what happens after that? And, um, you know, one of the weird incidents that I was like, I'm never going to see something like that. Like you're never, when you're going through cardiology and you're reading these ECG rhythms and you're like, I'm never going to like, it's never going to look like that. And then I showed up to a call that, you know, said like a, a, an elderly lady at a nursing home fell out of bed, can't get out of bed or can't, can't, uh, get her, get her up or something like that. And I showed up and she was sitting in the, in a chair and I was like, oh, okay, Hey ma'am, how are you doing? Um, you look a little bit better now. And she's like, oh no, it's not me. It's her. And then pointed to this little, little old lady on the ground. I had to be like 80, 90 years old. And I was like, oh my goodness. Um, sat down next to her free. She's freezing cold. Um, no blank. I mean, they, these nurses didn't do anything for her. Um, feel for a pulse. It was very weak and like, I could barely feel it. Um, and it was very slow and I was like, huh, this is, this is odd, but uh, like threw on, um, the, uh, a 12 lead or I'm sorry, a three lead and started to look at the rhythm. And I was like, that's a third degree heart block. I never thought I would ever see something like that, like a, a bradycardic rhythm like this. So I started some fluids, I actually gave her like, did a D stick to look, to look at her glucose level. She was super low in, in glucose. So we hit her with that, gave her some fluids, and now she started coming too. And now her heart started to change a little bit. Now, okay, like it's still really low. It's still in the 30s, which is not good, not sustaining life right now, at least for her. her. I'm in the 30s, but um, a little bit different situation. I'm not 90 years old. Um, so we put the pads on her and start shocking her um, with these pads and start you know, getting pacing her to get her up and going. And now she's alert and aware and um, she's receiving the shock and I think it's starting to hit her now like uh, like these things are are hurting and so my preceptor was like hey let's give her um, some some pain meds and I was like I don't feel like introducing pain meds to her right now is going to be a good idea like she was already unstable to begin with we're going to introduce like something else to now bring her back down we just brought her up now we're going to bring her back down I th- like I prefer just like yeah it's kind of sucks she's getting shocked but like, I'm afraid if we push this medication, she's going to be gone. Um, and he was like, well, if you don't, um, you're going you're gonna to fail. They're pretty much saying along those lines, giving that an ultimatum. And I was like, oh, shoot, like, what do I do? You know, I was like, okay, well, I believe you. I believe you've, you've been doing this for 20 years and, and whatnot. So I ended up pushing some, uh, some pain meds um, on her and then waited for a little bit. And then I could see, like, the zone out, like, the, like not there. And I was like, you know, started, she's still getting shocked, paced, and I'm giving her some sternal rubs. And I was like, hey, and I was like, hey, can you turn off the pacer for a second? Turn it off. And now she's in some sort of cardiac arrest. And I was like, dang it. I, like, I knew it. And, and so we started to hit her with some uh, flumazenil, some uh, reversal agents, and then started some CPR on her, brought her back. Um, but then she ended up passing away uh, pretty much right when she got into the hospital. So that was all, also a challenge of like, man, like, I need to stick to my guns of what I 
what I believe, you know, is, is right for the patient and not what some preceptor or doctor tells me kind of thing and, and encouraging you or pushing me to do something that I'm not comfortable with. You yeah. know what I mean? No, I do completely. I, I had a couple of incidents. One, I was, I think I was in med school, but I wasn't officially, you know, precepting with my department. So I was just on my regular shift and uh, we were pacing this patient, successfully brought him back from you know, near death. And it was kind of the same thing. He was like, oh, oh, every time. And he was, you know, about my age. He wasn't super old, maybe, maybe a little bit older, maybe in his 50s. And sadly, the actual medic made the decision to turn off the, the pacer. And you know and it was it was so sad i can still see it now the wife was at the back of the rescue and she's like you know take care of him she spoke to him she's like take care of him please she closes the door he shuts off the pacer and we never get capture again so by the time i got to the hospital he was dead yeah. and i had another one where it was a uh, probably i think she was about 90 she had a stroke she was lying on the floor for about three days when we found her it was kind of you know a wellness check that turned into you know full-on als call but she was still satting well. She still had like a 98. All her, all her vital signs were good and her tongue had swollen up. So I think it's the malampati, whatever the, the term is for the tongue size, it was at the most extreme. So I was like, well, why don't we just put her on a normal breather and leave her as she is? She's been, you know, saturating for three days, lying on her floor. She should be okay for a few more minutes at the hospital. And they want, they said, no, we're going to RSI and intubate her. So they knocked her down. Couldn't get a tube, ended up putting a king tube in. And you talked about the dark side of, of emergency medicine. The physician had such an ego. He spent about 30 minutes butchering her airway trying to get a tube in, you know, and it was it was exactly what you said. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to do it when you're, when you're a medic student because you really don't have the authority. But certainly once you graduate, like if if your leaning is towards the, the benefit of the patient, you know, then, then you do have to stand to your gun. So it's, it's a very, very important lesson. And you carry a little bit of guilt and shame with you the rest of your life for not advocating for that patient at that moment. Absolutely. No, you hit it on the head because that was essentially the first time where I was like, I could have done something really, really different. So like that kind of hit me and, and stuck with me for, for my entire career. You know, I, there's not a lot of things that I do remember, um, but that's, um, that is one that I do remember. Absolutely. Well, kind of going back to the PJ role before we kind of walk through the actual journey that you took, one more parallel. There are some departments in, in de departments all over the world that are doing it very well as far as maintaining physical fitness standards. Um, but sadly, they are the few. So how in the PJ world were you um, held to that high standard physically as well? Um, I think the, the the easiest answer is ego. Um, it's, it's uh, some sort of pride because, you know, you don't want to be um, the out of shape PJ when you show up to work with some SEALs or some, some SFDs or some Rangers. And they're like, who is this dude? Like, he is, does not look, he does not belong. Um, so um, the standard, so when I was going through it, the standard was the AFSOC PT test. You had to run a three-mile run, do a bunch of push-ups, sit-ups, pull-ups, and then a 1,500-meter swim. Um, and then each squadron, especially when I was at uh, the rescue squadron in Vegas, we started creating our own. Um, we had the uh, um, the op ugly, the operator ugly um, test, if you will. And so that was, you know, all lifts, deadlifts, 
front squats. Um, I think, I think some weighted pull-ups or something like that and so in a ruck. Um, so that was pretty, um, heinous, but really, again, it was, I think it fell on leadership. Who was, who were your leaders at the time? Um, me as a leader, we, we did everything together. I made, made sure my team did everything together. Um, I didn't force them to do stuff, but I made it a point to make sure that they knew that they weren't there. So if an individual didn't show up for the training that day or show up for our workout session, everybody else knew, and they knew that they weren't there. Um, because I made it so, so that, and, and when you worked with me, you didn't want to be different. Like, don't be different than everybody else because, um, we're all doing healthy things. Not like I was, you know, bullying him, but it was, Hey man, like you were sitting around doing nothing, like watching some TV show while we're in the gym, building a, 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 a bond here. We're deployed. We're, we're working out together. Um, and you're not being a part of that team cohesiveness. I need you to be a part of that team cohesiveness. Like you don't have to see everything the way I do. You don't have to walk the way I do, but you got to do things as a team with, with us, because when we're out there, I need to make sure that you're able to do the things um, that nobody else can, because um, for example, here at this unit, um, I was the one carrying an extra bag on me. Everybody else didn't really have anything, but their own personal stuff. I had to carry an extra med bag and water. And it like, when things went wrong, People had, were like, all right, PJ, what's your, what's your solution to this? Um, things are, aren't going well. Um, I'm going to be the one that has to carry somebody else out. And so um, I can't be more tired than everybody else. When something goes wrong, um, I can't carry a guy from, from being injured off of some area to another and then sit down and take a break and go, hold on, guys, let me catch my breath. I need to be getting right back into working on their friend and that patient at that very moment. I don't have time to sit there and catch my breath and all oh, my, my legs are sore and my arms hurt, my hands hurt, my fingers hurt. Like, yeah, all those things hurt, but I need to be in such better shape than everybody else so that I can perform my job the way I'm supposed to. Um, and so that pressure made it important to, to highlight with, especially with the younger guys um, fortunately, as I started to grow in, in the career and the career started to grow, um, we started hiring in the, the POTIF program. It was a preservation of the force of family. Um, they started hiring strength conditioning coaches and then, they, and then physical therapists and then psychologists and nutritionists, all these people, these different specialties to really essentially what a pro athlete has, putting it inside of a special operations unit and then making sure that we use their programs and we're operating at a, at a high level. Um, now how mandatory it is to use some of those depends on the squadron. Um, I think they're also being overwhelmed. You had a psychologist, you know, that was responsible for at least a hundred and 150 different people. How are you going to manage all those people, especially if all of them have a crisis all at the same time, you know, that's, that doesn't work. Um, you have you know, a, a strength conditioning coach that's supposed to be responsible for 30 to 60 guys um, and they're supposed to build a program for each one of them. Um, so I, I feel for them and their careers, they, they need to, they need to continue to hire, hire more of them. And then I think more of our guys will use them. But I think a lot of our guys that they have, that are in special operations are vain in themselves and very into themselves. So they want to look the best they can. They're going to go downrange and deploy, and they're going to go work out and eat chicken and whatever food and they're going to sleep good. Like that's, that's basically a deployment. You're sleeping, eating, 
drinking, go operate at night or go do whatever your mission is, come back and just rinse and repeat. There's, there's not really much cookies floating around, you know, in Syria and Afghanistan that uh, you can just pull out of your pantry. So with, with the deployment, you mentioned in Afghanistan and Syria. So one question that I like to ask anyone who's actually been deployed, and I'll preface it the same way. When you're a civilian, you get fed basically one of two kind of um, media lenses when it comes to war, either very, very pro-war, kill them all, let God sort them out, or very anti-war, they're all a bunch of baby killers. And then you have the middle, which is the common sense, the real stories from from the deployment. So I think it's very important that we hear, you know, that perspective. So the first part of the question, regardless of the politics that sent you to wherever the first combat deployment was, was there a moment, a kind of aha moment where you saw some of the atrocities or, you know, whatever it was happening in that particular country that made you realize there were some horrible people that needed to be dealt with? Um, absolutely. I think, um, one in particular comes to mind. No, I think the, the first time I got shot at, um, I can only go into that story. Uh, on my first deployment, third day in country, um, I'm sitting on a, a rooftop. We work at night. And, um, so we're doing all of our, our handover stuff typically right before, um, right when we wake up or before bed, it's daytime. We're going to get on the roof and we're going to tan. Because if we don't, we're going to come back as vampires um, because all we do is work at night. Um, and so I'm on a rooftop getting a tan, um, board shorts, flip-flops. Um, and this is in Jalalabad, Afghanistan in 2010. And um, there's an explosion at a gate you know, not too far away. Um, and I was like, man, that's too far for me to really get involved, um, but close enough for me to sit and watch and enjoy a show. Um, so I was like, okay, this is my first real taste of kind of combat action. Um, let's see how that, what happens here and see a couple like a sniper go up to a tower and start like getting some targets. You see the helos taking off some, some OH-58s and some 64s. Um, and they're, they're dropping, you know, shooting hellfire missiles. And I was like, God dang, I didn't realize how loud those things were. Um, and so just carnage is happening over there. And I was like, Oh sweet. Like, and so everybody else is getting up on the roofs um, and watching as well. And then I could hear get, like the gunshots. It sounded like we're really close. And I was like, is somebody, one of my other buddies with me, I was like, is somebody shooting like right below us? It sounds like somebody's like taking shots outward. And I'm looking around and I look over the edge and then I see a, like a dust kind of shoot out from the, the wall that's below me. And I was like, um, was was that a gun was that a bullet and then i see another one and then i hear like th these snaps kind of going by me and then i hear those like a like bees or like a, a zip go by me and i was like hey they're shooting at us <laughs> and and uh the, you see the rounds kind of hitting some of these uh ac units and whatnot and th then it really dot like okay i better get down and do something or i'm gonna get shot up here um and so got down a bunch of other dudes jumped off the building and actually broke their ankles um, jumping off the building when they could have just walked down the stairs or there was even a fast rope on the side of the building. They could have fast rope down, but they jumped. Um, so we got down off the building, um, got our kid on. So still on board shorts and flip flops, just threw kid on and grabbed the gun and, and went to the wall and waited for them to show up. So um, 
that was a, an interesting experience. But um, to realize that these are some evil, some bad, uh, bad people. Number one, I was like, I couldn't believe somebody else was trying to kill me. That was that first feeling like somebody's out there looking at me and trying to kill me. Now I, now I am getting mad about it. Um, and then the next one was, um, there was a hostage rescue. So some of our folks, um, our U S forces were taken hostage. Um, and, um, this was in Afghanistan, same time period. <clears throat> and then, um, I was running, um, as a QRF or C part of the CSAR package and QRF package, um, for one of these assault forces, they went and, um, got intel that one of the bodies um, was buried in a shallow grave at this area. So we went out, they went and dug up the shallow grave and uh, just seeing pictures and seeing this body and, and just the mutilation that took place and what they did to this individual. And you're like, wow, these are some horrible human beings, you know, to, to beat this individual to where their, their head's the size of a basketball and, you know, cut off their tongue and cut off their genitals and put the genitals in their mouth and light them on fire you know, at what point did he die? Was he alive during all of this? Like all these things go through your mind and you start realizing like, man, these are some, some terrible people. And so that was a busy deployment, um, more busy than, than other um, individuals get to have in theirs. Um, and that's where I kind of developed my mantra that I'm a black cloud of doom um, because things were always going wrong around me. Um, and, and just really saying, yeah, that that's where that, I guess that, uh, that hatred developed um, of where I need to get back at some of these folks. Um, yeah. Well, I think it's such an important perspective and I think it's important for it to be graphic. You know what I mean? I mean, these are the horrors that we see and I'm always, you know, underlining like a, a lot of times these stories are about, you know, Iraqi people or Afghani people being terrorized by, you know, these, these shitbags in their countries. And, you know, it's very easy to tar the whole country with a whole, with a brush. Oh, all the Afghani people are terror. No, they're being terrorized by, you know, some of these people. And then obviously you had the atrocities to, you know, our own soldiers to the allies. And, and I think that was really, you know, horrendous with that rapid exit that we had. And, you know, I'm sure there were many, many people that subjected that after. Yeah, absolutely. And then, and then even more so in that deployment, lost a lot of um, teammates of mine on, on there. That was kind of the, the next step of, of where my loss took place, or at least the losses of people close to me. Um, one, one guy, um, he was, uh, came out to North Carolina for a train up, and him and I got pretty close and um, hung out with him. He's a ranger. Um, and so um, during one of the ops, um, like we were playing call of duty the, the night, the night of the op. And so as I'm just absolutely demolishing them on, in some, some video gaming, um, I said, man, like Lugo, I hope you don't, I hope you don't play like this. And I hope you don't do this in, in real life, man. He's going to get smoked. Um, and then that night he ended up getting shot in the face, um, and killed that night. So, um, and then another one of my buddies, um, shot through and through in the chest and, um, brought him back to the FST alive and then put some chest tubes in him and he ended up dying in the, in the FST or the field hospital there as soon as the chest tubes went in. So um, that was another lesson learned of like, man, I don't think I'm going to put chest tubes in the field if we don't have blood to replace because that, that he essentially bled out inside of his chest cavity uh, as soon as those chest tubes went in. 
Well, that's something I've talked about a lot. Obviously, my, my, my stories aren't in a military capacity, but the inability to save. And it must be even worse when it's one of your, you know, your brothers out there. But they, I don't know if you had this yourself, but, you know, when you go through the EMS training, if you do A, B, C, and D, then you'll save the patient. And the reality is you can do A, C, A, B, C, and D perfectly and they still die. And that is, you know, one of, I think one of the, the most crushing things. Like when, when something goes wrong, you know, when I've had, had a quadriplegic, he'd been a quad for 30 years and, you know, he finally had this GI bleed and there, you couldn't even compress the chest. He was so atrophied. So there was no saving him. But when everything yeah. like the, a 28 year old that I had a brain bleed, everything went perfectly. And he still died. It's kind of like, you know, your, your brother in the pool there. And that, to yeah. me, that inability to save is one of the most crushing elements of what we do. Yeah, it's kind of like trying to climb up a water slide that's, that's got oil on it. You know, you're doing everything you can and you just can't make it to the top. And, you know, um, that's, that's what it feels like sometimes when you're, when you're treating some of these patients and just, you know, everything you're doing. And, and then you start to think, maybe I'm doing the wrong thing or I'm missing something. What am I missing? Um, that's the question I always had in my head, especially as a team leader. Um, and, and that's one of the biggest things I, I tell young guys is it's not the actual action of the treatment, like a crike, putting a crike, a surgical airway in um, or innovating somebody or like that. The action of doing that isn't the issue, isn't hard. Um, putting a scalpel to somebody's neck and, and then putting a tube inside there. That's not a hard thing. It's when, when do you do that? When do you decide now is the time I have to do that? And you brought up RSIs earlier. Um, I had a patient, um, an Afghani on one of my deployments, um, impact in an IED, um, hit the roof of the vehicle, um, open skull fracture, his brain's hanging out. It gets into the, into our helicopter. We get him in there. Um, and he's combative. He's fighting me. And so I'm trying to hold him down. Um, we have him on all these monitors covered in dirt and all kinds of stuff. And, um, clearly has also shrapnel all over his body. So we're trying to put chest seals on him. Um, and, and I was essentially, I, I thinking I have to, we've got to, um, we've got to put him down. Like he's fighting so much that I have to sedate him and I'm going to have to take that airway as well. Like, because his, his brain's going to swell up and I'm going to lose it regardless. So. Let's RSI him um, right now, and then we can take all of it at the same time. And so um, hit him with the medication um, because I saw his sats were dropping as well. Um, hit him with the medication, uh, started bagging for him. <clears throat> and then we tried the intubation. Um, and so the intubation in a helicopter is pretty challenging um, when, when you're laying horizontal on your heads at one door and your feet are at the other. Um, the, the medic or the PJ has to essentially stand over top of the patient, either looking down at them or with the head in between your knees as you're sitting down and, and try not to manipulate too much to get the, the tube in there. Um, and so could not, I try to innovate in it. There was so much teeth and stuff in the way or blood and it just wasn't possible. So like, Hey, crack them, um, rebag them. So, one of our guys was happened to be in the right spot. He started to crike and then, you know, gear, especially overseas. And I bet in um, some environments where, you know, you haven't checked your gear in a long time and it sits out in the open, maybe in a garage somewhere that's got um, not climate controlled. Well, as soon as he tried to bury that uh, scalpel into him, 
into his neck. And this guy's skin was number one, super like as thick as an elephant. Um, number two, the um, scalpel blade became so brittle that it broke as soon as he started the cut. Um, and so he broke, it broke. And then um, if, I wish your viewers could see this. He, he cut this, uh, it broke in his hand and he looks at me, um, holds the scalpel like right up to my face and looks at me with his big wide eyes. <laughs> and, uh, and I was like, well, what are you showing me that for? Like move. All right, let's get another one. And so then I finished the crike. Um, and then we ended up working on him, getting him into the hospital. He lived for another day or two and ended up passing away from uh, the head trauma. Um, but uh, I kind of forgot why I told that story. But. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, you know, it's like I said, so many parallels, but it's so, so interesting and important for us to hear, you know, all these different stories, especially from you. I mean, when it comes to trauma medicine, there's no better you know kind of teacher really than than your world because yes we see it and we deal with a lot especially on the roads roads and gang violence are the two that we usually see um but the mm -hmm. you know the frequency that you guys have and, and again like you said the the access to maybe higher levels of of training and equipment on some areas and i've heard other ones where you know like field surgery with with medieval tools is all they had so it's it's really oh, interesting yeah. Ooh, yeah so conversely the other side of that question you are deployed in these combat zones. There are regular people living amongst all this, you know, death and destruction. Were there any moments of kindness and compassion that you remember amidst some of those battlefields? Um, sure. I would say, you know, um, I would say, especially in Syria where they, where they really wanted to be there. It, it was really hard. Um, at least in our, our environment where, you know, the, they want to do everything for you. you they're, you're a guest in their home or their area, um, and they're going to make food for you. They're going to give you their water. Um, they don't have a lot, but they're going to give you everything that, that they that they have. Um, so there's those those moments of compassion that, from these local um, locals living in the area. Um, they're great, excellent hosts, um, and and they're also fighters. I mean, you have some of these. Um, individuals who are really fighting um, for for everything. You know, there's some that are fighters, and then there's some that are not. So I'll tell you two stories. One of a fighter of this this group of essentially militiamen um, up on a hill just northeast Afghanistan, um, north of Fab Bostic. Um, they were getting overrun, um, and so they were down to the point of of hand to hand combat, knife fighting, um, and so they had an injury. Um, they're like, Hey, we got a casualty up here that needs to come down. They've been shot through and through. So we fly up, um, to this, to this peak, um, land up at the top. Um, and these people had nothing, uh, but they were up there just like gunning it out, fighting hard warriors, um, pick up this patient, put them on the helo. Um, we couldn't bring other people with us because of weight loading capacity. So, um, there was an elderly looked elderly he was probably 30 but people look really old out there um getting trying to get on the helicopter um and we ended up having to kind of pull him off and keep him off and say hey man stop like we'll bring him back to you it looked like he was probably related to that individual um close the, the helo get him uh flying to the hospital um as i start to look at the patient with one of the other pjs with me there's feathers everywhere i mean it looks like somebody took a goose down blanket or like a goose 
uh, pillow and just like ripped it open. I was like, I don't, I don't know what I'm looking at right now. Like I could see his face. There's, he's just covered in feathers. Um, and I was like, I don't know where he's shot at. Um, so I start like scanning the body and then like I grab a chicken wing and I was like, there's like a, a, ch- a wing from a chicken with some skin hanging off of it. And I look at it and I show one of the other guys like, well, what is this? And I kind of set it on the ground. And then the other guy pulls off another one. And I was like, I, like, I was just baffled what is happening. And then I look and then, and they actually used the chicken wings and the skin off of it as occlusive dressings for his through and through. Uh, so we cleaned them off real quick, threw a couple of darts and then put some real chest seals on them, got him to the hospital and then put some chest tubes in him and he ended up living. Right. Um, really incredible. It was an awesome, awesome story and, and uh, uh, happy to see his outcome. Conversely onto the non-warrior side, land um, on a, uh, a mass casualty event um, in, in the su- Southern Afghanistan. And as we land there, like all the Afghan fighters are just sitting down, smoking cigarettes, laying down like cross-legged, don't really like no desire to do anything. Um, no desire to fight back. He's sitting down cross-legged and you can still hear the firefight taking place inside of the building. And I was like, Hey, who are those people over there? And they're, you know, a couple hundred yards away or maybe, maybe a little bit less. And they're like, oh, um, yeah, that's not our guys. I think that's, that's enemy. I'm like, well, can you shoot at them? Like, why, why are they letting <laughs> shoot at us? Um, and so, conversely, an- an- another sniper was taking shots um, from a, a fob nearby at some, some of those fighters near us. Um, so we ended up pulling a bunch of patients off. And um, the last two patients weren't really um, – patients they were really uh just scared um and so they were not warriors um and so get them onto the helo i'm giving one of the ground medics the rest of my medical gear and then i turn around and one of the other pjs that's on the aircraft um lets these two onto there and uh, these two uh afghan uh, ana folks afghan army folks um are laying down hugging like spooning each other um and i was like <laughs> I don't want to say his name, but I was like, Hey man, what are you doing? <laughs> like separate them. This is not a, it's not a bedroom. Let's get some treatment on here. And I started looking for, for wounds or anything. They didn't really have anything on them. They just came out and didn't want to be a part of the fight anymore. And so that's, there's two different types of individuals. You, know, you get your fighters and you get your, your quitters. And uh, so it's it interesting to see both sides. Um, and then the compassion on the, the U S side. So, um, had a, a Marine step on a, a IED on a patrol, lost both of his legs. Um, he was actually not too far from where we were in Bastion, um, flew out, went, picked him up. And his entire um, platoon, I want to say, or at least his group that he was with, his team, uh, I think they thought he was going to die. Um, so they had lined up and they were you know, giving him hugs and, and kisses on his foreheads and, and uh, trying to say, you know, their goodbyes. And I had to push them off and say, Hey man, like I can save them. Hospitals literally two miles that way. Like it's, we get there in two minutes. Um, I need you to step back. And then we ended up getting him back there and, and, uh, and saved him. So, um, and now he's, he's, uh, medically retired, but he's, you know, does has his, his uh, prosthetics and whatnot. And so, uh, it was a really good story. Um, I, I tried to contact him a while ago. Um, and, and we talked once, um, but I, I hope he's doing well. 
Do you remember his name? Because I've had a, a few Marines who were NPCs on the show. But... Um, not off the top of my head. Um, I'd have to look it up again. I've got a picture of him. I can send it to you. Okay, perfect. Yeah, brilliant. All right. Well, then I want to get through, you know, to to your own kind of TBI PCSE element. Um, but before I do, you're going to have to help me with the, with the chronological path. Um, Peter Cranes. When mm-hmm. did you start working with him? And tell me about who he was. As far uh, as far as the actual man, we'll we'll get to the incident later. But you know, so, so people can learn who Peter actually was as a person. Yeah, so he um, came up to the twenty fourth STS, um, and I had already, I came up in two thousand thirteen, two thousand fourteen, um, and so he came up in two thousand seventeen, um, and so went through green team, um, ended up having to get recycled, and then went through green team again, um, and so finished on his on his second time. I didn't really get to know him till that second time on green team. And it's still, I didn't really know him. I was just a queen. So I was helping a guest instruct a little bit. Um, but, um, I would see him around. Um, and I know now, um, really who he was. He's definitely, he was a man of faith. Um, he's, uh, was married, um, with one child and then one on the way, um, on his death, at his death. Um, super loyal, uh, very driven. Uh, one thing that you would um, recognize and you would identify right away is at night, at any moment, you could tell who Peter was um, because he was the guy smiling and you could always tell um, you know, he had this just big smile. Um, so uh, there wasn't really a time where he wasn't smiling. One of our guys tells a story of, of driving um, through the mud in a, in a rainstorm in a Humvee and everyone's just getting smoked. And all you could see through the windshield is Peter's smile um, through there enjoying just the suck. Um, and so that was something that he was always motivating individuals or he was always very selfless and making sure that individuals um, that needed help were getting the help, um, you know, for training incidents. Um, and a, a teammate forgot his gun um, on a training evolution. What a nightmare! That's that I still have nightmares to this day about forgetting my gun on missions or training uh, scenarios. And this actually took place. Peter gave him his gun, drove back to the building to get another one, uh, or to get his, and then came back to the training evolution. Um, so he was essentially sacrificing his own um, you know, himself of being potentially getting in trouble or being pulled off uh, the training evolution. And even more so the team. Um, so that's how selfless he was. Um, he would show up to people's houses that needed um, help with whatever housework needed to be done. Um, his dad grew up in construction. Um, so he grew up in construction. He had um, several siblings, all sisters. So he grew up in a family of, of all sisters. Um, and, I, and I know he enjoyed running and, and playing soccer and whatnot. So um, fantastic individual i would have loved to have got to know him more uh, but his biggest passion was um, spreading his his christian faith Um, so i I learned a lot about that um, after his death beautiful well i just wanted to obviously hear about him we'll get to to that tragedy in a moment you talked about um the sts you know green team which i hear obviously delta refer to that too um 
I was unaware. I mean, I knew that PJs were spec ops in the Air Force, but I didn't realize there was a tier one element to the PJs. So just kind of before we walk through your path of, of your kind of mental health journey, can you educate us on, on what that tier one element is and how the differences are between a regular PJ and, you know, a tier one? Sure, absolutely. Um, so at, as I started finishing up one of my last deployments on the rescue squadron, I, I knew I still wanted to deploy, and those deployments were going away for the white side. The only unit that was still deploying regularly and still doing the job was the 24th STS. Um, and so that requires an assessment selection. So you apply to drop a package. Um, as a, a lot of information, psychological eval. If you get picked up in that phase one portion, you get a phase two, which is the in-person event. Um, where you get psychological screenings, board interviews, and then you have the physical portion, which is um, walking a long ways uh, with a really heavy ruck and doing all your skill sets and then really proving yourself over a period of 48 hours um, of, of that you're capable of functioning under high stress um, and you're performing not well, but you're performing above everybody else, um, that you are excelling and you're making zero mistakes. And if you do make mistakes, how does that affect you? Um, are you just beating yourself up and that's the only mistake you, that's the thing you think about all over and over, or can you let it roll off your shoulders and then get to the next one? Um, so those are some of the things that they're looking for. And so assessed, got picked up, um, I actually left Afghanistan, um, arrived back in the States, uh, packed up my bags and then flew out to selection that same day. Um, so I didn't really have any, any family time or home time when I got, got home. I went from Afghanistan to selection, suffered, got selected, and then and then um, went to green team. And so green team, another year of training, and you're just doing all the same things you normally would do, um, just a lot more of it, uh, a lot more frequent, and a lot, um, with a lot more assets. So, you know, something that would be hard for me to plan in a white side um, unit. So any any other SD unit or rescue unit uh, would take a lot of uh, other entities to plan. This is something that happens regularly. Uh, so at a white side unit, we would plan like a day of training we might just be sitting in a classroom, sitting in a, in a little room and um, working some innovations and things like that. Well, that's nothing like a typical day of training for here at the 24th STS and what it should be and what it usually is, is you show up and you're doing a full mission profile. You There's helicopters involved. There's multiple contingency operations involved. Somebody's going to get be a man down drill, um, and you're going to do these operations, um, and you're going to do it over and over again until you can't get it wrong. Until nothing, until we've solved every problem, then we're ready to deploy. Um, that's the, the standard that you should be training to. Is, you know, with every element, tactics, your CQB, your shooting, your medicine, your rescue stuff, your extrication, um, your jumping. Um, so all of these things are just doing the same thing, just a lot more of it, um, with a lot more assets. Um, and so the reason why we do that is because we attach to other tier one sister service units. Um, so we would attach to, um, your Delta force and your SEAL team six units, um, and work as a, um, as a, a rescue specialist within those squadrons. Um, and so the, the job is essentially the same as the other white side units. Um, when I attach to a regular SEAL team or a, a, a Green Beret team, um, an SF ODA, 
I'm still operating on that same, um, that same capacity, only this time it's for these high value target raids or these hostage rescues. Um, so usually if there is some sort of deployment where you see on the news that somebody, um, some organization is claiming to, to have done, there's more than likely a PJ and a combat controller with them uh, that have done that raid with them. Um, and I'm sure, you know, especially in those re these recent raids that took place not too long ago, um, there's, there's got to be somebody with them. Um, so that's it in a nutshell without getting into into too much detail yeah no we don't need too much detail at all but yeah i just i think it's 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 great to hear that you know and i think when i've had people from delta from seal team six and you know now yourself you know you've got the regular special operations special forces communities that are held to a high standard physically that are are equipped well that are trained well as you said start to have nutritionists and you know exercise physiologists and all these groups attached to them and then you've got another level above that and then you look at the police and fire and, you know, the huge discrepancy between best and worst in those. And there are some good departments that have, you know, some of these people attached to them and they are well equipped. And there are some fire departments, for example, that do 42 hour work weeks. But then you have, you know, federal firefighters that work 72 hours a week. that get murdered, that, you know, with very little tools and training. And um, so when... I talk to people like yourself that are part of these, you know, high level organizations. They always say, well, we expect police and fire to be held to the same standard as us. And I think it's an important perspective for us to see the, the standards and the equipment and the, the training levels and the realism and training that you guys have. And then be able to measure our, you know, our current department and where do we fall? You know, do we even have a fitness standard? And if not, why? And as you said, you know, that ego, that's exactly what it should be. We shouldn't need training, fitness standards because we should all be as fit as possible. But, you know, there are some people that are very self-motivated and some that aren't. And you end up, sadly, with, with some of these responders that we see that would literally be unable to facilitate a rescue if it was required of them. And that's completely unacceptable. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and you have it, you know, one thing that, kind of sucks up up here is a lot of guys finish green team and I won't say a lot of guys use sometimes guys will finish green team and then and then they've made it they've made it to the top and nothing like there's nothing else that they need to do um and so that's that's discouraging to see see individuals like that like hey man like um here's the here's the thing is like for our job um as a pj like I want to be um as fit as possible so that I'm able to help the individual as best as I can. And because my job's physically demanding, I haul, if I'm hauling equipment off of a boat into a ship, sometimes that equipment's like a hundred to 200, like 10 to a hundred pound bags. Like it's pretty exhausting. Um, or it's multiple people I'm having to belay off of something or I'm having to haul them somewhere or I'm carrying them somewhere. Something's being carried somewhere and who has, has to do it typically or me or the PJs. Um, are probably carrying some sort of heavy equipment. Um, and we always come with extra bags and goodies. So um, that's what people with the other salters don't like is like, hey, <laughs> hey, man, will you carry my schedule for me, please? Um, I'll give you a monster. And then I have to go beg, borrow, and steal. And like, also, like, can you please not steal the stuff out inside of it? I need it when something goes wrong. Um, so those, there's those things that happen, especially like, or if you give it to an interpreter or a, or a local um, 
a surrogate force that's helping you out. Um, and you're like, Hey man, can you carry this? And then you show up to the target objective and then you're like, you actually need that equipment and you go, Hey man, can you bring me that stuff? Where, where is it? Well, I left it back at the, uh, our last site that we stopped at. And that's like 800 meters away. Why did you take it? Why did you take it off back there? It was heavy. <laughs> what? I need that. Like, so that kind of stuff happens. Uh, funny now, not funny. Then. <laughs> well, walking through from the mental health side. So, Prior to you know that tragic event where you lost let yet another friend, um, you had started seeing some some kind of changes in your behavior that that ended up leading you down a, a kind of mental health um, educational journey. So what what was the kind of initiation of that? When did you start worrying about how you were feeling and, and how other people were perceiving you? Um, excellent question. I came back from a deployment. Um, and we typically do reset weeks. Um, and so I was actually sitting in a, in, in our little uh, PT area and one of our buddies came up and one of my buddies came up and he was talking to me. I had known, I actually deployed with him in 2010. Um, and this is 2019 and he's talking to me and we're uh, like, we're just rapping and talking. And then he walks away and I was like, Hey man, I talked talk to my buddy, like Brandon's like, who was that? Who was, <laughs> what was his name? Like, I don't remember who, like, his name and, and where he, like, I just recognized I knew him. And I don't remember how I, like, how well I knew him. Um, and so that became, like, an identifier. Like, uh-oh. And then same thing, I went, I went to Walmart one day and I, I came across a dude um, that I knew for a while. Um, he's actually one of our coaches at the gym. And uh, I just, I wanted to say hello to him but I didn't want to be so embarrassed because I didn't know, I don't remember his name and I'd known him for five years at this point. And I was like, I don't remember his name. I have to not even say hi to him because it's just going to be embarrassing that I don't remember his name. And which is crazy to me. Um, and so I'm like, I need to get this figured out. So we had this reset week and I sit with a psychologist and sort of like, Hey, is it possible that I'm having like memory loss from CBIs and things like that? I'm like, sure. Yeah. Let's talk, get you to a neuropsychologist get a neuro, uh, an MRI done, do some neuro, neurocognitive testing and do some in-depth one. And then at the end of the day, we look at the scores and they say, hey, you're actually performed superior in most categories, you know, except for one that's, you know, below average, um, which is attentiveness. Like your attention span is pretty low. And then you also fill out this PTSD questionnaire, which tells me you have, putting these together, you have PTSD. And I said, no, I don't. Um, because I wanted to continue to deploy and do my job. And if I have PTSD, then they're going to put me on meds. I'm not going to, that's just a pathway that we typically don't go down. And so um, there was an email that was sent out by the psychologist and she said, Hey, we're having a PTSD um, forum, if you will, open forum um, inside the, this, this room called the heritage room. So go sweet. Like email her. Hey, um, like to attend. Well, gonna, I'll be there show up there at the time it says it's happening, open the door and there's, there's nobody in there. Actually, there's two people in there, the group commander and the group chief. And they're obviously having a meeting. And here I am this like completely like with my foot in face, like, oops, sorry guys. Didn't mean to interrupt your meeting. Thought there was a briefing here, close the door. And then it, and then I guess I missed the email that it had shifted and changed. Nonetheless, I met with her and I was like, Hey, 
um, what do people typically come to you about for PTSD? I don't know what, I know what I see in the movies. I don't know what that means to me. What, like, how do I know if I have this thing? Um, cause I feel like I don't, but there's something that's happening here. And so we start into some therapy and I'm very resistant and I start to say, you know, some of the stories I've told you before and some of the so teammates that I've lost. Um, and so identify several symptoms um, that I've got some, some pretty severe anxiety, some d- depression, I'm distant from everybody, including my family. My, one of the biggest factors or reasons why I went to go talk to her was um, my wife had told me that my two boys who were nine and seven at the time um, were scared of me. And so that was a kick in the gut, that they were afraid of me and that it became so bad that my wife, their mom had to sit me down and say, hey, your children are afraid of you. Um, And that, man, that what a blow. Um, And so I can't be that way. You know, I like I told, you know, I told myself I would never be that way when I grew up as a dad, uh, because that's almost what it felt like with my dad sometimes. Um, So continue to identify some of these symptoms, had some sleep disorders um, identified. And so started working through therapy um, and started to enjoy my job again. Um, and then that's when I set up um, that training trip to go out to Boise, Idaho. Well, let's talk about that then. So October 8th, 2019, um, you know, the, I mean, the, the, the day itself was tragic, but obviously the, the things that happened after were you know, not only horrendous in their own element, but, you know, contributed to, to further mental health challenges. So talk to me about, you know, the, the reason for setting that up and then, and then what occurred that day. Yeah. So we, um, were coming back from deployments. Um, and so the teams were shifting around a little bit. We're having to reorg of the teams. And I was like, this is a really good, excellent opportunity for one of my younger guys to, to kind of lead a trip out. It's, a, it's an easy trip. It's a morale builder. We're going to get some team unity going. And what I wanted to do is get some of these PJs who are um, proficient at climbing to teach some of these controllers who have never been on the, on the rock or have very little experience with our combat controllers. And so this is an excellent learning opportunity for them, for, for the combat controllers, an excellent opportunity for these PJs to, to develop as leaders and to, to teach their craft to some people who don't know it. And so I would just oversee the operation. Um, and so planned out this trip, um, Peter, he wasn't on my team specifically. He's on another team. He had come back from an deployment, done several climbing trips. He's like, Hey man, I want to come. And I was like, okay, um, but I'm not, my team's not paying for it. Um, your team is. And so he's like, yep, got it. So they took care of it and he made it out on the trip. Happy to have him there. Um, and he was really killing it. And so as he was climbing and, and I consider myself a, an okay climber, like a decent, like I was, I was thought I was better than everybody else there. I mean, I knew I was better than everybody else there. Um, and then Peter started climbing and I was like, Oh no, he might be better than me. Well, this is not good. Um, and so I'm going to have to start, like, we're going to have to start having some climbing competitions here and see so you can get up this thing the fastest and whatnot. So the first day was really good. All top rope. Um, doing some some lessons and um, really excellent day of climbing. Um, second day, doing the same thing, talk about some rescue stuff, some mountain rescue stuff. And then we're cleaning up a site um, and it's like 3.30. And for me, you know, I was like, well, we got plenty of climbs in today. I, I'm, I'm willing to call it, you know, maybe an hour or two early. 
um, head back, clean up, go go get some dinner and um, have a couple of drinks for the evening. So we're cleaning up, me and one of the other controllers turn the corner and uh, one of our guys is climbing up this other route. And I was like, dang it. I don't want to, I didn't want to climb yet. I was like, hey, Peter, what's the plan? He's like, yeah, we're going to do the same thing as yesterday. Get everybody to the top. Once we're at the top, we're going to set up a belay station. Everyone's going to get down. And I was like, okay, cool. That'll take 45 minutes. It's about a 70 foot climb. You know, we, we can rush through this. Um, Josh got to the very top, set up a, a line to, to top rope everybody up there. Uh, I think John went up second. Peter then went up. Uh, Alan went up. And then Peter put, put another rope in, in some chains. Um, and as he put the rope in the chains, it's like, oh, even better. Let's, he's going to rappel down off of those chains before I even get to the top. So this is going to be fast. Like as soon as I get to the top, I'm just going to wrap down and then we'll pull this thing up and call it good. Um, and so I'm just turning around, taking a scene, standing on this, this taller stone. Um, and I'm like, yeah, this is, this is not bad. Um, I actually enjoy Idaho. It's beautiful. Turn around. It's my turn to climb. And I started looking at my route. And then as I was starting my climb, the first guy started his descent. Before that, um, he was about to get over the edge. And it was, it was a challenging edge transition. So he said, um, Peter said, I'm going to move this anchor from the chains to um, the rock formation behind him. And I disagreed with him. Uh, I stated my points of what I wanted. Um, he ex- explained to me why he wanted to do it. I agreed with him in, in his reasonings and thoughts, but I was very adamant about staying in, in the chains. And so I was like, okay, well, you know, he's a team leader himself. Uh, he's a seven level. He's capable of doing these things. I, I watched him do everything. He's not doing anything unsafe. Um, so I, I'll let him do this and then we'll talk about it when I get up there or when I get down or once we finish the climbing of the day. So he sets up that anchor and as I'm climbing. That's when that first individual is going down the rope, the rope. So as he's going down the rope, I'm thinking, well, the, the anchor is good. This first guy already went down and I heard them talking about it up there. Um, got to the top, started doing some instruction on how I like to do anchor placement with uh, trad traditional pro um, with some cam devices and nuts and things like that. And the second guy starts his, his rappel. And as he's going over, he feels a shift and he's, he's getting a little weak in the knees. Combat controller is not used to being on the rope. And, you know, obviously naturally I'm poking fun at him. I'm like, Alan, it's okay, man. Just, just deal with it. Get over it. You know, it, everybody gets, it gets a little shaky sometimes. Um, and he's like, Hey, Peter, we good. Peter rechecks the system. He's like, yeah, everything's good up here. Peter's tied into that anchor in case he slips and falls. Something's holding him up. Alan starts his rappel um, and as he gets about halfway down and I'm doing instruction with Josh, um, I hear kind of a loud like clap or a bang behind me and I turn around and I see the rope going over the edge and I see Peter like zooming with it. Like it looked like he was trying to hold the rope back and I didn't understand kind of what was happening. Um, And what really, what I realized in that moment was the anchor that the, Pro was in the rock shattered Alan, who was on the rope about halfway, he fell 30 feet down, um, impacting the rocks below and his weight pulled Peter off of the very top. So Peter fell the full 70 feet. Um, and it looked, I mean, he looked like he got whipped off. And so he was fighting it, fighting it. And then he just went, um, and you could, I, you know, clear to this day, I can see it, you know, just, the, just the, as the same day that happened. Um, 
arm circles. It looks like he's looking down at what he was, how, where he wanted to land or where he was going to impact. And it looked like he wanted to get, make it a little bit further. Um, because if he had gone about 10 meters from maybe a little bit more than that from the wall, there's a steep incline. And so if he it looked like he was wanting to make it to that incline, so then absorb his impact and, and tumble down. So he's going to be injured, but not as much as just a flat impact onto the ground itself. And so in that, he deliberately dropped his head down, uh, flipped over to his back, um, but didn't make it that far. And that stone that I was standing on before he landed his back right on top of that stone. Um, and so hit, bounced over to his face. Um, and then I could hear kind of a groan um, as he settled. Um, Josh at the top was really close to him. I could hear Josh yelling down to him, and, you know, saying, you know, Peter, I'll, I'll never forget the way he said Peter. Um, after the impact or after seeing a fall, I had to stop Josh and say, Hey man, I'm going to rappel down there. When I get down there, I need you to get his airway kit. Cause Peter was the primary medic. I need you to get his med bag and bring it to me. I'm going to put it in an airway. Um, are you good to rappel on your own? Are you safe to rappel on your own? And he said, yep, he's good. I looked in his eyes and said, are you good? And he was good. And so I started my rappel, got to the bottom, ran over, looked, listened and felt, didn't have a pulse or a heart or a, or a breathing rolled him over with Alan. Um, and while John was on the phone with, with the, uh, dispatch for nine one one, um, and he had an open fracture on his elbow. Um, he had a gash on his, uh, over his right eye. Um, and it felt like he had a broken neck. Um, and so Alan saw the, his bone sticking out of his, his elbow. Um, and, and kind of pointed that out. I was like, Hey, that's not our primary right now. Let's work. We have to, we have to do something else. Let's look, listen and feel again. Alan starts CPR. He started CPR. Josh got to the bottom, handed me his med bag. I started to attempt to innovate. Um, I'm talking to the dispatch at the time and then trying to ask them to bring life light helicopter out. And ultimately, you know, after a lot of back and forth, I asked if they had a, a hoist capability and they didn't, uh, which, you know, they had in order to get where we were, they would have had to have a hoist out. Otherwise we're going to have to take them down to the road, which is going to take at least 20 minutes um, setting up a rope system and everything to get them down to the bottom. Um, so w- when we rolled him over, um, I had one of the guys lay out a sketch um, tried to intubate a couple times that failed because there was blood and teeth and dirt in his mouth. And I need to make sure that, and I didn't want to manipulate his neck too much because I knew it was broken. Um, and so I had to make sure we had a tube in there. So, um, pursued a surgical crike. Um, so cut a hole in his neck, put the tube in, um, John wanted to do something. So he hadn't had a breath in a little while. So I was like, Hey John, like if you really want to do something, he hasn't had a breath you know, give him, give him a couple rescue breaths in between these CPR, um, compressions as I prepped the gear. So he gave one breath and immediately sat up and was like, Oh man. Um, and you could hear as he blew into his mouth, it sounded like you took a straw into a soda pop and blew bubbles into there. That's the sound it made. So I was uh, indicative that he's got some sort of blood like building up in his airway somewhere. Um, so cut a hole in his neck, put the tube in and started bagging. Um, 
And then Josh was able to do a finger thoracotomy on his left side. So a chest tube without the tube, um, rolled him over and probably about a liter of blood came out. Um, we didn't have blood to replace. Um, and it instantly, you know, once that happened, like I was instant flashback to my buddy, Chris Wright, who I told you earlier in, in this conversation about him dying from the chest tubes in the field uh, or in the field hospital. Um, so I was instantly back there about, you know, I don't want to put his chest tube in. We don't have blood to replace. Throw the chest seal on and let's move on. Um, got him on the schedule, packaged him up. Fire department gets up to the scene. Um, and now I'm, I'm bagging um, and watching his lips turn blue. His body starting to relax. His eyes are starting to open. Um, and I'm now accepting that he is, he is not coming back. This is where I'm accepting that he has, has died in front of us. Um, and so fire department gets there. I ask for suction. Um, they give me the suction unit. I start suctioning out of this airway, uh, pulled some stuff out, but, but, you know, really wasn't that big of a help. Um, and then told the other guys to step away, to let the fire department start the, uh, the uh, compressions. And one of the biggest reason I told them to step away is because I, um, knew that they were going to put the pads on him. Uh, and I knew what was going to come up and I didn't want them. Um, I don't know, to have that memory. Um, I don't know, selfishly, I kind of wanted that um, to sit there and, and confirm it for myself. So they put the pads on and it came up assistedly. Um, and I said, can you guys recheck the pads and test again? Um, and they did it again and it came up assistedly again. Um, and then I knew, like, okay, that's it. Um, and got up. Um, and made the phone call to our boss and said, Hey, um, there's been an accident out here. Um, and Peter, um, fell off of a cliff and, uh, he's not coming back. And they, you know, it took a while for him to process what I said. Um, he was like, Hey, he's life flight there. I'm like, no, they're not sending life flight cause he's not coming back. When's he getting to the hospital? He's, he's not going to the hospital. He's not coming back. Um, and it took a little bit to, for him to accept that as well. And so brought him um, down off the cliffside or off the mountainside, got him to the, to the road. Um, the police officer was there um, and he was able to push the media away. Uh, and he had a flag inside of his car. And he said, I know you guys do pin flags on their bodies um, overseas. Is that something you want to do here? And I said, absolutely. Um, so I was thankful of him to bring that out. Um, and so we laid out the flag over his body, um, pinned it to the bag, um, and then gave it a salute and, and put him in, in the mortuary affairs van. And called up my boss again and said, hey, this is the last flag I'm going to pin on a teammate. I don't want to do this anymore. Um, and tried to quit. And he told me that, you know, you, you can't quit. You got to get your team back to North Carolina. Then we can talk about it. Got them back to North Carolina. Um, and pull myself off a team. Um, when I pulled myself off a team, I had no intentions of coming back. Uh, I was not in a good place. I was having nightmares. I didn't sleep um, at all uh, for, for at least a week or two weeks. Um, I was anxious. I had no confidence in my leadership. I had no confidence in my medical skills. I didn't want to do anything. Um, I was in the, you know, I was a shell of a human being. I didn't want any part of anybody. I wanted everybody who was at the unit to hate me. I didn't want to receive any of their condolences. I didn't want to be around them. 
I avoided the, the 24th at all costs um, because I blamed myself for everything. It was, it was my fault that, I, that, that everything took place. Um, and so after a couple months of therapy um, and her, my therapist doing a, a really, really amazing job of essentially saving my life and convincing myself it wasn't my fault, I came back as the team leader. Uh, my team wanted me to come back. Uh, and so I came back, took that team over again. And within about 24 hours of coming back, I got a no notice call to a deploy. Um, and so 8 a.m. phone call deploying by 12. Um, so we flew out um, to this location, um, did our thing for a couple months, um, pretty uneventful for the most part. Um, but it was successful for me as a leader. I started to gain my confidence back as a leader and I felt good. Um, I was losing, you know, I was finally accepting what happened. Um, the accident was under investigation still for safety and accident investigation. Um, and so that was still looming over my head, but I was deploying and I was still doing the job. So I came back from that deployment in late February of 2020. Um, we're going to deploy again in May of 2020. In April, the investigation closes out. Um, and we're doing some, some training. Um, I'm, I'm kind of the head jump master of some jump training and uh, get called in, get a read out of the investigation of what happened. And they find exactly what, what we knew, um, that it was an accident, that there was nothing we could have done to change what happened. Um, and there's nothing we could have done to save his life. You know, if he landed on an OR table, he would have still died. Um, and so that was, you know, relieving that the investigation was over the military still wanted to hold somebody accountable. Um, and so they held me accountable as the team leader. And with that, um, the punishment, they removed me from my job as a team leader, um, which is the only thing I wanted to do. And then they removed me from that unit. And so, like I said earlier, it took us, took me a year just to get here, a year of extra training, um, a whole selection process. Um, this is the only place that was deploying that I wanted to be at. And now I was given 30 days to PCS and move to a new place. Um, and I was going to lose the continuity of care with the therapist. I was going to lose all the strength conditioning coaches, the nutritionists, the, the therapists, uh, the, the physical therapists. I was going to lose all that within 30 days. Um, and I was going to show up to this new unit, having been fired with no context of why I got fired. Um, this new unit was going to be in Las Vegas, Nevada. Um, my wife and I were stationed there in the past. And we had significant difficulties in the past back there. Um, and so I knew the negative influences that were waiting for me there. Um, and so I, that was not an option, like absolutely not, will not go there. Um, in fact, I now have no confidence in my job in, in doing this. I just spent six months convincing myself it wasn't my fault. Now I had a piece of paper telling me it's my fault and telling me I have to leave the unit. Um, so now I definitely don't want to do the job. Now I've like, I don't have any top cover at all. Um, so I, the only way to continue seeing the therapist I was seeing was to push a medical retirement. So I actuated that plan um, and started my medical retirement process um, in order to, to continue getting therapy. Um, so I ultimately didn't, you know, essentially take my own life. Um, so as that process started, I started realizing that now I'm going to lose those resources at some point. You know, I'm going to be stuck to the veteran, to the VA system. Um, how do guys, when they leave this career field, when they get out, how do they maintain themselves when they do get out? 
started calling people up and then um, a lot of their stuff was, you know, it's piecemeal together here and there. Like, how, like, you know, you go to this one physician, you go to this physician, you get these things ordered for you, you go to this place and hit this nonprofit up. And I was like, that sounds like a full-time job. And that, that, that is not efficient. That's, there's gotta be a better way. Um, and then, so started dabbling in the idea of uh, starting my own nonprofit. We're just going back for one second because I want to get to the nonprofit next. I know we've been we've been chatting a long time, but uh, one very pertinent part of your story, I think, is is what a lot of your brothers did during this time. So when you look at it from a mental health standpoint, you know the transition out, the regular transition out, is extremely hard for a lot of men and women in the military and in the uniform services, um, because we lose that purpose we lose that tribe we lose um you know we, we identify as the pj as the cop you know and, and that's a struggle in itself but to lose a close friend to have have it you know shown on a piece of paper that it was an accident the same way as we talked about you know the the gentleman that you lost in training you know these things are unseen you do everything to mitigate the risk but nothing is risk-free and then you're taken out the the one area, what the other area that I see really contribute horrendously to mental ill health is organizational stress or feeling betrayed by your organization. So talk to me about the impact of that on your mental health, but also talk to me about what, you know, what the men that you work with did as far as uh, um, their response to what was happening to you. Yeah. Um, yeah. Great question. So, um, when I got fired, there's two, two responses. Um, it was relief was number one. All right. Now I have a clear direction of exactly where, where, what I'm going to do, where I'm going to go. I don't have to worry about this stupid badge anymore. I don't have to worry about opening and closing the building. I don't have to worry about, you know, showing up to these, learning these different individuals and these training evolutions. Like I don't have to worry about that anymore. Like I know exactly where, where I'm going to go. So there was that relief. And then there was, yeah, the betrayal of like this, these individuals saved themselves um, because they weren't willing to fall on their sword. Um, now the, the firing actually came from high up, um, you know, about as high as you can go in AFSOC um, that the hand came down of somebody's going to fry for this um, regardless of what happened. So um, the support I received um, was pretty in incredible. So uh, what a lot of people don't know is that my, and my immediate leadership, uh, my squadron commander, my squadron senior enlisted advisor, um, both went to bat for me um, and both refused to fire me. They had, the, they had the choice. They had an option. Do we fire him or not? And so after I spoke to him, to, to one of the, those individuals, um, he said, no, we will not fire him. If we do that, we lose him and we lose the squadron. We lose him as a person um, and we lose him as a leader. We can develop him into be this, this really strong leader. Um, having gone through all these experiences, he's going to take these lessons learned and really just be a, a huge asset to the organization. And number two, if we fire him, that the rest of the squadron is going to see that nobody's, nobody has their back um, and you're going to lose, you're going to lose the squadron. Um, and so they presented that to their boss. Um, and then the same day that I got fired, those two also got fired with me. 
um, because they refused to, to fire me. So they went down with the ship. Um, and that was incredible um, for them to do for me on my behalf um, because I couldn't ask for better leadership um, in that instance. You know, if I was absolutely just hung out to dry by them, that like that I would have been even, even low, even lower than I was. But I had these two um, facing the music with me because they were willing um, to do what was right. Um, and so they went down with the ship. So um, one of them also started their medical retirement with me and, and the other one moved on to other things. Um, but then the response from the rest of the squadron, um, I would venture to say about a third of the squadron up and left. Um, they they uh, rallied around me when they found out that I got fired. Um, my entire troop, my entire team, um, 30 guys showed up to help me unpack my uh, my uh, locker, my cage. Um, so they were there with me. I was told I couldn't do it during the weekday. I had to do it during a weekend on a Saturday when nobody else was around. Um, and you know, I, I don't know why that was a stipulation in place. Um, but the team thought that that was unacceptable. So they showed up, um, and helped me pack up my stuff and, uh, and they were there for me. And so early on, I didn't want them to be. And now I was super thankful that they were, um, that they were there to support me every step of the way um and the, the kindness a lot of them sent out you know personalized letters um emails phone calls um and yeah, all the nicest things you could possibly say and um so i was really thankful to have them and so um in that same time period about 27 other um, operators um, dropped their medical retirement packages as well um so they opted to get out because um the leadership changed they realized that this is not um, the the organization that they signed up for, um, and that they don't have their back. That there is no top cover, um, and that people are out here just to to stomp on the heads of the people below them, so that they can make a rank um, of their own. Um, so that was really um, fortunate to to see for me and my mental health that people did believe in me, um, and even more so, um, Peter's family. I stayed really close with them. Um, and I try, try my best to continue to do and, and serve, um, you know, in Peter's name and, and make sure that I'm doing right by him and right by his family. Um, and so when they took me in into their graces, um, that was all I needed um, to make sure that, you know, for my recovery. Um, and so they were just as upset um, as everybody else when they found out that I got fired. Well, I think it mirrors, you know, a lot of things that we've seen and yours is a, a far more extreme version of what I'm about to say. But even with some of these, you know, mandates of the last couple of years, whether it's military, whether it's first responders or doctors and nurses, you know, these men and women that served and held the line. And then when this rolls around, they're like, oh, if you don't have this, you're going to be fired. Whatever people's perception of, you know, vaccinations, for example, to lose your job, having risked your life for, you know, decades is is just disgusting and to see you know, the, the consequences knowing the consequences for your men in this case to band together and stand behind you that's what we need to do as a nation right now you know i mean that's such an example of what we should be seeing brotherhood and sisterhood you know there's a lot of this tyranny whether it's within a department with a military organization or whether it's nationally that you can either be a bystander or you can stand the fuck up and you know, stand shoulder to shoulder and actually say, no, this is not acceptable. And even though you guys transition out, ultimately, you made a hell of a statement in doing so. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you said it, hit it right there on the head. And, um, you know, those guys, I still stay in touch with most of them. And uh, I'm very thankful, thankful for their friendships. So out of this came an incredible organization. And you talked about the kind of maelstrom that is trying to reclaim your physical and mental health after you transition out. And I'm on this journey. I mean, it's just an ongoing process to undo the damage of 14 years of you know, fire service, for example. So talk to me about the genesis of Shields and Stripes. And then also let's expand on, on what does set you apart from some of the other organizations out there. Yeah, absolutely. So as, as I said, that you getting stuck to the VA system and talking to these other folks that were out, they're piecemealing things together. And, and I thought, man, there's got to be a better way. We have to do something different. Like what we need is, you know, the resources that I had in the unit um, to be available when I get outside of it. Like that, that's what, I mean, this worked for me here and it's worked for everybody else that, that used it. Um, that's what needs to happen out here. So how do I replicate that? And so started making a lot of phone calls to other nonprofits and, and, and other entities and, and actually got some, some pretty discouraging feedback, especially from nonprofits that state that they help veterans. Um, most of them told me it's too hard, too, uh, it's going to cost too much money, that I should quit. Um, you know, why do I want to do that? I should do it for different organizations. The veteran market's saturated. Sure, it's saturated, but I'm also doing something a little bit different. Um, and, and I'll explain how it's different here in a minute. But all these very discouraging comments to a veteran who's trying to get out. And here these are veteran service organizations that are uh, supposed to help, help me um, are telling me to quit, give up, and that it's too hard, that I, that I shouldn't do it. So it goes back to the theme of you, you won't make it. Um, you know, back to my you know, full circle, my basic training instructor telling me I'm going to quit and, and I'm not going to make it. And so now I get to prove them wrong. Um, and I said, you know what, since you guys won't want to help me, I'm going to do it by myself. I'm going to find people who will help me. Um, so came across Jennifer Byrne, Dr. Dr. Byrne now. Um, she ran her own uh, performance therapy program and, it, and it's all telehealth. She had the exact same ambition as me, um, and she was executing it differently than I, than I envisioned. And so I gave her, proposed her my plan, and she started giving me some advice. And at some point, I said, Jen, I don't need the advice. I need the cooperativeness. I need you to join me in this cause and help me start this up. And so she was thrilled to be a part of it, and, and then we started developing a business plan. How does this work out? Coming up with a name, so I came up with a name. Just driving to Raleigh one day, Shields and Stripes. Um, it just rang, hit me. Um, shields for the, for the badges that uh, our law enforcement and fire folks wear, um, and then the stripes um, represent the military career fields. Typically, most of them have stripes, um, and so um, developed that name and then started developing the concept behind it. Um, so a four-week program um, that would provide a strength conditioning program, a nutrition program, physical therapy, and psych therapy. Um, exactly what we do in the military, at least in the special operations unit, just outside. Um, and now offer that to veterans, law enforcement, and, uh, and first responders or fire and EMS. Um, and so once they leave there, Jen was like, we got to have some follow through and that, you know, that wasn't my plan to begin with, but she, you know, wanted to have some sort of virtual telehealth platform and, 
So we said four weeks of in-person, 12 weeks of telehealth. So when they leave there, they'll take another three months of developing themselves at home, taking the lessons they learned in person um, and bringing it home with them and including their families. Um, and so that actually was one of the biggest differences as we started entering into our pilot phases. So we started the entity legally in April and then started running uh, fundraisers in August of 2021, raised enough money to start our first pilot program um, in September of 21. And we had a, an agreement with Exos, which does uh, pro performance um, for professional athletes, typically the NFL combine prep, but a lot of other professional athletes going through there, focusing on strength conditioning, nutrition, physical therapy, and just all physical performance. Um, so developed that relationship, asked if we can use their facility. They agreed. Um, so we ran our first program, um, a one-week in-person and a three-week telehealth. Um, program. So it's a cut down version, pilot study, if you will, just to do a proof of concept that this does work. Um, and so we partnered with a mental health nonprofit. We bring in a mental health professional that does the mental health side um, inside of that same facility. So um, an individual, just to give you an idea of what they get when they show up there, they show up in the morning, you know, probably at seven in the morning um, and they get um, a breakfast that's made for them. So they, they have a meeting with a dietitian, sit down with them and they understand their um, eating habits, what they're typically, what's available to them, any kind of issues that they may have like celiac disease or anything like that. Um, what are their limitations? Are they on a specific diet? Anything that you can think of, what are their goals next? Weight loss, performance gain, what is it? Um, and then that dietitian develops a meal plan for them and then goes to the cook because there's a cook there and says, these are the meals that they will have available to them. And the cook will make this meal. And we're talking some pretty good stuff, like some, some high quality meats, um, even exotic meats, um, fish, you know, what, what, whatever um, is programmed in their meal is made for them and given to them um, both breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Um, and so when they show up, there's their meals waiting for them on this counter. It's got their name on it. Eat it. And then they go to uh, a supplement station and the supplement station is also individualized to them. You know, if they're vitamin D deficient, they'll have vitamin D supplements. If they got fish oils, there's a fish oil thing. Here's some stuff for gut health. Here's also your pre-workout shake, um, you know, sponsored by whatever um, supplement brand that's, that's being used there. And so there's an intern handing them this, this stuff. They drink the pre-workout then go to this coach who's typically coaching NFL combine athletes and pro athletes runs them through their session, coaches them on strength conditioning, on the turf, weightlifting, whatever. And then they go back to that supplement station and an intern hand, hands them their protein post-workout shake. They leave there, they take a shower, get their lunch handed to them. Um, they might get a massage that day. They might get uh, some yoga. They might get a hot and cold plunge. They might do sauna work. And then in the afternoon, they do mental health therapy, either individual or group therapy and then some education with the occupational therapist. Um, so that's a typical day of what it looks like for them to go through it. And then they get their, their dinner handed to them and they go back to the resort hotel that they're staying in. So a five-star resort um, and they're, they're getting world-class treatment inside of this facility. And then they go back to this world-class resort, um, go to this super nice room, you know, either on the beach or in this really nice place 
in Phoenix and then, you know, hang out in one of the seven hot tubs that are down there and, um, and start the bonding. That's where real healing takes place because these other individuals that are going through the program with them are meeting them there and they're bonding together. They're developing this rapport, this, this, you know, all these different backgrounds, law enforcement, fire, veterans, active duty, all have different um, scopes as far as why they're, they're there. Their stories are all different, but their symptoms are all very similar. And so they have this rapport that's developing up. Oh yeah. Like I can't sleep either. I don't, you know, I stop breathing over and over in my sleep. Um, oftentimes I'm anxious all the time. How do you deal with it? You know, I have kids, you have kids, like how do you deal with these things? Um, so it's a very, very different than other um, one week or three day workshops that I see. And those are great. You know, no, no dig on them. Those are great. Um, but those aren't changing lives. Those are educational. Um, I spoke to some of them. They, you know, they go to this one week workshop and it's a great vacation. Then they go back home to all, to all their problems um, and nothing's changed. Um, I'm, I'm building something to change people's lives. Um, you know, our folks that have gone through there, um, a couple of them have said that they were, you know, were on the edge of taking their own life and that this legitimately saved their life. Um, so we ran our second program in January last month. Um, and that one was two weeks in person and six weeks of telehealth. And, uh, again, it was just, wasn't long enough. And we're stair-stepping this up to do a proof of concept. Um, I know it's, it needs to be four weeks, uh, but we need the money to be able to fund this. It takes about $15,000 to put somebody through this program. Um, and that gets them all their airfare, their lodging, their food, all their services, pretty much everything taken care of for them, except for on the weekends. The weekends are theirs. They can they do whatever they want on the weekends. Um, but, but that's it. And, and that covers everything for them. Um, so we try to do no more than 10 at a time. Um, so we can get that quality work in for each of them. So the therapists are very focused on individual sessions. Um, I would say that's what makes us very different um, than anybody else. We've been around for less than a year, um, but we, we plan to stick around for the rest of uh, time as we know it. Um, so hopefully, hopefully your listeners can help out, help the cause out um, and, and get us to our goal. Uh, we've raised $500,000 this year so we can get put two programs through um, filled with uh, 10 candidates each. Beautiful. Well, you talked about the online component as well. I think one one place I've heard that some um, some of these retreats and, and that kind of thing fail is they're really good when the people are there. But firstly, the family aren't getting anything. So when that person goes back home, as you said, all the problems are there and you haven't healed the, the wife or husband and the children who have been dealing with you as a piece of shit because you're so angry and burnt out and whatever it is. So there's that. And then the other thing is they don't have that community. So, you know, they go back from after this you know, amazing experience and then there's nothing. So what will that telehealth component have for the, you know, the, the military member or the responder? And then are there any other kind of tools for the families themselves? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, that's something we identified in this last pilot was, you know, that they, they came out, the individuals come out and, and they're in this five-star resort and, you know, they're in this world-class training area. Um, and even I experienced it over my career, you know, going TDY to these different places where spouses, my wife's texting me like, oh, you're just on vacation. Um, you're just out having a good time and I'm here with the kids, you know, suffering. And it's my job to, to present to them like, Hey, they're, 
There's a reason why they're here. We have to take them out of that environment that they're in. Let's build some new habits. Um, and then during those sessions that they have, the mental health sessions and occupational therapy sessions, we're going to include the family member telehealth style or, or Zoom, Zoom call in um, so that they can see what's happening, what's taking place. They can be a part of it. Um, and then when they get home, all of that is, uh, is pulled in. So they will have these sessions with the therapist and the family included. So to explain why, why is he so distant? Why is he or she so distant? Why is he or she so tired all the time? Um, why is he or she not want to go out and go to the park with the kids um, or irritable or can't sleep or all these different things? Here's some explanations of why. Like these are, these are actual normal responses to traumatic events. And now let's address some of these responses and, and develop some healthy habits um, to include fitness and diet, because those things are some of the most important things and sleep hygiene. Those are the most important things for us, for our health um, is to, to dial those in. If we, if we can fix some of those things, you know, just one little step at a time, um, you know, that's, that's our 1% rules. Continue, continue to make yourself better every day at 1%. Um, it's not going to, you know, we're not going to flip a light switch and you're just going to be better. Um, but if you keep doing it, these different things and change it into a lifestyle change, um, man, the, the, hopefully the family changes with them. Um, and, and that's what we intend to do over that 12 weeks um, of that telehealth. Beautiful. So for people listening, whether they actually want to be a part of the program one day or if they want to help, you know, fundraise or donate, where's the best place to learn more about it and do that? Um, excellent question. We have um, a website, um, www.shieldsandstripes.org. And um, we also are on social media. So we have a LinkedIn page. We have an Instagram page and a Facebook page. Um, would love for you to come up, check it out. There are actually a few videos on there of testimonials. Um, you can see me tell my story on there and see some pictures of, of Peter and and uh, the sites of, of where that took place on there and kind of the, the inception of this all. Um, and then there's an application form online as well. So if you wanted to partake in the program yourself, very simple, fill out the application form. Uh, you click the button, it'll send you an email link. You download the link, fill out the application, and then email it out to that contact email. Um, that'll go to our therapist. The therapist will screen it, look at it. Um, and really what they're looking for is if you need immediate help right away, if you feel like you're going to take your life right now, we'll get you somewhere else. Um, we'll get you to, to a different nonprofit that, that can help you more immediately. Um, you know, if, if not, if you can wait because our next program is until July, if you can wait a couple months, um, we'll get you in the system, have an interview with you or a screening with the therapist, talk to you a little bit about what you're experiencing, and then that'll help develop your individualized plan. Um, that'll also touch you, put you in touch with the physical therapist at Exos, the nutritionist at Exos, um, and then start developing um, your specific journey, if you will. Um, we are calling it the hero's journey. Um, so it is a journey. It's a, it's a pathway to, to healing, and it's certainly not um, a short one. It's a long one. Um, and then if you're wanting to donate, if you, if there's a way you want to help, but don't know how, um, yeah, $15,000 is a daunting number, but, um, $10, um, still helps out. And if we have, you know, 1,500 people donate $10, 
um, that's $15,000. Um, and so that's one person that gets help right there. So any little bit absolutely goes a long way. Um, it helps us not only helps that individual go through the program, um, but also um, that, that money can also fund us sending an individual to another program that they might need more immediate help. Um, so I've paid for individuals to go to um, another um, addiction um, or detox center. Um, so though our program's $15,000, that costs you know 600 bucks to send that person there. So that's another way that the money's used. I'm not taking a salary out of this. Nobody else is. Um, 100% of the donations are going towards the athlete and themselves going to the program. Um, so eventually, once we do make uh, a lot, you know, enough for me to pay myself because I do need to survive somehow to pay bills, um, I will, um, you know, receive a little bit of compensation, but but just enough to to pay my bills um, on top of my retirement check. So um, those are a couple ways to to get plugged in, um, and and hopefully we can get some more help. You know, it's, it's, I need help in all ways. Well, Stephen, I just want to say thank you. I mean, firstly, for you know all the all the interesting kind of parallels, like I said, in the paramedicine element, but also the places that you went. You know, recalling some of the events. They, I understand that revisit and takes a takes a little piece of you again, but the the impact of of that storytelling on so many people listening, whether it's um, you know some of the the lessons learned with transition or whether it's just realizing that some of the struggles that you've talked about are the same things that we talk about or we, that we have and we think we're alone with. So I just want to thank you for being so transparent and so courageous with your, your storytelling today. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, there was, there was actually a couple of moments where I was like, uh-oh, I'm feeling it. Yeah, but it was, it was really good. Thank you for having me.